What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Hey, guys. In this episode, I talked to Mark Schneider. He's a nuclear futurist and a leading expert in emerging Gen 4 nuclear power. He's got a bachelor's degree in nuclear engineering technology and has spent 20 years working with advanced, small-scale nuclear reactors within the U.S. Naval Nuclear Power Program. Basically, he's way smarter than me. I really wanted him to come in and give me an overview on all things nuclear power, how it works, why it's important, and where the industry's going. This is a fascinating episode that I learned a ton from. Before we jump into the episode, though, I want to talk about our three sponsors for today. The first is Crypto.com. It's a pioneering payment and cryptocurrency platform that seeks to accelerate the world's transition to cryptocurrency. That's right. They got a vision to put cryptocurrency in every wallet. It's frankly why we're all here. The Crypto.com app offers a full range of financial products with competitive pricing, well-designed user experience, and high security. It's the best place to buy, sell, and pay with crypto. And these guys have been a longtime supporter of Off The Chain, and they keep launching new product after new product. So do yourself a favor and go to Crypto.com to check them out. Again, that's Crypto.com, the place where mass adoption is occurring. Next, we've got a new sponsor in the podcast, Taxbit. They just announced a huge fundraising round, and they're simply going after helping you pay your taxes around cryptocurrency trading. So the IRS, they just released this new tax form for the 2019 tax year, which requires all taxpayers to attest to whether they traded cryptocurrency during the year. It's a pretty big deal for awareness. And so if you're one of those people, you've got to file an IRS 8949 form, which reports your capital gains and losses. Taxbit automates your cryptocurrency taxes, enabling you to effortlessly track, calculate, and report your transactions. You can easily connect all of the different exchanges to securely sync your transactions and then run them through the Taxbit tax engine. This generates a completed tax form with one single click. The company is founded by tax attorneys and CPAs and is quickly becoming the most trusted cryptocurrency tax solution in the market. If you go to taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp, you can get 10% off your tax plan today with a free trial. So again, that's www.taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. The best part about it to me is they've got live support with experts whenever you need it. So literally, you can go and talk to experts who they have on hand who have experience facilitating thousands of crypto tax filings and IRS crypto tax audits. Again, that's www.taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Lastly, we got eToro. They're still here, man. These guys are animals. So another longtime sponsor of the podcast. The company's probably the most underrated in all of crypto. They got started in Israel and quickly built this massive business offering stocks, commodities, traditional currencies, and cryptocurrencies to users around the world outside the U.S. Last year, they finally launched here in the U.S. and they got started by offering cryptocurrency trading. But they're not just any crypto exchange. Remember, they've got two cool products. They've got the social trading and the copy trading function. Social trading essentially allows you to navigate to any asset and you can see a social feed of people talking about and sharing information all around that asset, charts, graphs, and various information. And then the copy trading feature lets you find someone you like that you think is a good investor, you click copy trader, and all of a sudden eToro will mirror your portfolio to theirs. They buy an asset, your portfolio buys the asset. They sell an asset, your portfolio sells it. So head on over to eToro.com and sign up for an account. 
Let me know what you think about their social trading and copy trading features. And when you hit eToro.com, let them know that Pomp sent you. They really, really, really hate getting the customer service tickets and social media mentions about me. So you guys know what to do. And lastly, off the chain, don't forget, we don't only have the podcast. I really enjoy recording all of these episodes, but I also write the daily letter to investors. Most people would keep those letters confidential and private, but I allow anyone to subscribe to read the letters every morning. You could simply go to offthechain.substack.com and sign up today. Now let's get into this episode. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Mark here. Uh, I'm super excited to uh, record this episode. Um, The caveat to it all is until about 48 hours ago, I knew absolutely nothing about uh, nuclear energy. Um, I have spent uh, a little bit of time Googling around, reading. Um, I even listened to a Department of Energy podcast. Uh, yes, the Department of Energy has a podcast. <laughs> um, and so I've kind of done my best to uh, to get a base understanding, but I wanted Mark to come in um, and really give an overview of, uh, of um, this power source, kind of um, how the science works, how the reactors work, and then talk through the pros and cons and, and what the critiques are and the responses, et cetera. And so uh, thank you so much for coming here to, uh, to New York. His first time in New York City um, to, uh, to do this. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been fun get finding out the speeding out the city. <laughs> I think he actually said to me, uh, we, were, we were messaging and he said, uh, it's busy. <laughs> I said, yes, that is an understatement. <laughs> um, all right. So let's get started just with your background so people understand the perspective you're coming from. You spent 20 years in the Navy. Maybe tell us a little about what you did there and what you've done since you left the Navy. Yeah. Yeah. So I did uh, 20 years in the Navy. Um, I operated uh, on, on, or I served on three different submarines and an aircraft carrier. So I've seen both the uh, the underwater and the surface side of uh, the Navy. Um, I also work for uh, an organization called Naval Reactors, which is kind of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission version uh, for the military or for the Navy, providing regulatory oversight and construction and operation of the reactors. Uh, and then uh, I have uh, commercial power experience as well. Um, and so that's kind of my overall general general background. Um, and then in addition, you know, my, my you know, a man of very few uh, uh, hobbies, and uh, my wife is a nuclear engineer too. So you know, I have the you know the nerdiest pillow talk of anyone. Um, <laughs> so you know, it's 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 a lot of fun. But uh, you know, it's, we eat, breathe, and sleep nuclear at my house. That that's awesome. Uh, Do you guys meet Navy or, or outside or what? <laughs> so my wife worked for the shipyard, and we met on the USS California while she was under construction. We met in her the instrumentation and control room. That's all the the uh, equipment that controls the reactor itself. So that's where we met was literally in the room filled with uh, all the equipment that operates the reactor. For two nuclear engineers, that's like a very romantic place to meet, right? Yeah, it was love at first sight. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so so let's get into a little bit... you know, you have a very unique uh, background and experience in terms of uh, not only are you uh, very well versed in kind of the regulatory side and the construction of these reactors and, and kind of the oversight, but also having been on uh, aircraft and submarines, you've seen um, kind of what I'll call the land-based reactors, and then also what's pr- uh, powering some of these uh, military vehicles and, and, and transportation, et cetera. How does nuclear work, right? I think is one of the things that I always um, get 
asked about now that people know that you're coming on and I say, I, I don't know, <laughs> right? So kind of what's the best way to describe how nuclear actually works? So this is the way that it's described amongst the, the, the super smart nerds that operate these reactors. And I love this because it's the, it's the simplest explanation and it's the magic rock gets hot it boils the water, it makes the roundy roundy, which causes the arky sparky, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is fascinating. And, and basically to, to break it down and, and you know, is that you've got a reactor um, and what you use, you use a, a fuel and there's all sorts of different types of fuel and I'm not gonna bore you with that, but it absorbs a neutron, it splits, that causes heat to be generated. That heat then used to boil water, it turns a turbine. That turbine can either, um, it can be used to make power in the form of a commercial plant, or it can be used to uh, you know, drive a propeller on a ship. And then the other thing is that steam for, say, an aircraft carrier, at least the older, the, I say older, last one was built not that long ago. But uh, they'll use that steam to drive a piston that launches the aircraft off of them. Got it. And, and so really what's happening is there's a reaction. That reaction causes heat. The heat boils water, water boiling creates steam that steam is captured and spins this turbine that you're talking about yep. um i think that generally anyone who's spent some time on like how energy is produced the idea that hot water creates steam through a turbine is used not just in nuclear but in other forms of energy as well good yeah i mean absolutely i mean and uh, you know it's it's funny because with the exception of solar they you basically have a rotating piece of you know of equipment that is attached to a generator that makes your electricity mm -hmm. And how you rotate that, whether it's like a coal plant that uses the exact same style of steam plant, or not exact, but very similar style steam plant to a nuclear power plant, or you can do it with you know, oil you know, to heat that. Or if you say have um, you know, like a, a, a diesel engine or a gas turbine um, or hydro where you just have something else that's causing that rotation. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, you go out on the street and you see the big light poles, that's literally just a mini power plant right there it's just it, it's using gas to drive an engine that causes a shaft to turn that's attached to a generator that you know is making electricity and powering that light pole so the same concept works it's just that in nuclear you're doing it on extremely large scales for sure and and the reaction that's creating the heat i think is the part that is kind of a black box to people right and so maybe describe a little bit about how that reaction is occurring from the, from the actual science of it yeah, so the way it works is that you have, you know, your your fuel, and I'm just going to use uranium-235 as where you say, we'll just call it uranium-235 as a fuel for this. That uranium absorbs a neutron, and and then it, it splits. It, that's Those are the fission products. That's part of the waste we talk about. And this is like a, a collision, right? Where yeah. basically uranium is sitting there doing whatever uranium does in kind of its steady state, and then we're taking a neutron, and we're uh, creating that collision in a reaction, and, and that's where the heat comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And then what's happened is is that when that atom splits, it splits into two fission products, and it also will release a number of neutrons. The average for uranium-235 is about two and a half. And now if you can, if you do the math, right, if I have one atom takes one, it generates two and a half neutrons. Well, now you can see you can develop an un self, you know, or an uncontrollable reaction. So we have these things called control rods or there's other methods to control the reaction. And so it's like a throttle on your car. So we basically want to control the amount of neutrons. They absorb the neutrons, these control rods do, and the neutrons get absorbed by that so that you have basically every atom of uranium that splits, you have one neutron generated to go on to the next uranium atom. Okay, and so um, as we take these neutrons, 
you know, create the collision with the uranium atom and there's that splitting. If this was to happen just out in the open and in, in not a confined space could be problematic because it's just uncontrolled. In this sense, what you're essentially doing is first you're putting it all into a controlled area. And then what you're describing is in that controlled area, the science behind this is you can essentially uh, use that throttling mechanism to make sure that every time an atom splits, there's only the creation of one new neutron on a net basis. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it perfectly. Got it. All right. I'm going to be a nuclear engineer by the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so going back to, um, so that's how nuclear works today. How does that reaction to heat to steam to the turbine how does this work inside of like a nuclear power plant so talking on land you know what most people would think of as like the large-scale power plants what's happening in those power plants how do we go from that kind of one mechanism to the actual um, large-scale uh, facility well i mean you've just got a lot of uh, they're they're called uh, fuel assemblies that are just made up of these little rodlets that are literally about the thickness of a, of a large pen mm-hmm. and they're like several feet long at least for u.s reactors and they're they're all filled with these and they're all filled with little pellets of uranium inside of there and uh uh that that reaction just occurring at a really large scale you've got a lot of those reactions occurring um throughout the entire uh, reactor itself um that's generating that large quantity of heat um and so yeah so that's the basic thing and then you uh as far as uh, it causes in like a pressurized water reactor that water gets really hot it is pumped through what's called your primary loop into a steam generator the steam generator generates steam it pumps it into a uh, or the steam is sent to a turbine spins the turbine it's then cooled uh, using like a, a lake a river treated sewage like out at Palo Verde and then um, it is condensed back into water they pump that water back in so you have a closed cycle Got it. And so in an average U.S. Uh, reactor or power plant, how many of those rods are we talking about that could be at use at any one time? So um, uh, a 900 megawatt reactor has about 160 fuel assemblies in it. So okay. fuel assemblies are about uh, it's your 14 to 18 inches square. Okay. And inside of those fuel assemblies is a bunch of different rods that yeah, are in there. Yeah. Got it. And, and so um, is that true, like the, we'll call it the U.S. design, is that true internationally as well? Because the, the numbers that um, when I was researching, there's about 100 active nuclear power plants today in the United States. International, including international, you get to about 400 total globally, right? Is that yeah. so generally about right? Yeah, we got, well, 460 globally right now with 56 under construction. Um but uh, so the, the U.S. for so the pressurized water and boiling water reactors, that is the that square assembly is is true. Um, I don't know a whole lot about most international designs, okay. that, but I do know I believe that most uh, Russian and Chinese design follow that same thing because they're very similar. Uh, there is an interesting design that, of, that comes that are very similar between Russia and um, Canada that they actually use shorter bundles that are um, round in shape uh, because they use a heavy water style reactor. Um, but uh, they're, they're just round with little short, but they can do online refueling, which is a little different than our plants. We have to shut our plants down to, to refuel them. Got it. And so. and so how does the land power plant differ from on a submarine or an aircraft, right? When it's what I'll call it mobile, um, is it the same design just on a smaller scale and in, in, in a ship or a submarine, or is there some difference in the design there? There are there are some differences, but 
overall, they operate very much the same. Um, and the, the differences are, are relatively cosmetic for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they basically do operate. It's, it's just a smaller version. It boils the water, makes the steam, and then it either it spins the turbine to make the make electricity or it spins the turbines to drive the shaft that puts moves the, the, the vessel to the water. Got it. And so um, throughout all of these different designs, uh, these rods that have the uranium pellets, uh, the one of the questions that uh, when I asked on Twitter, like, hey, what questions do we have? Uh, a lot of people were asking about our dependence on uranium, right? Obviously, uranium is a key component of this. One question is just, is uranium the only fuel source that can go into that? And then two, um, kind of how do you think about dependence on uranium, our ability to, to find more, and, and if that's a risk or not? So um, based on uh, a couple of scientific papers that I've seen, we have about 1,000 years of uranium-235, which is the fuel that all U.S. reactors use. Um, and we are very inefficient with our fuel use of that. We literally only use about half of it or so, maybe a little more than half. Um, and uranium-235 only makes up 0.7% of all natural uranium. So we're talking, we have 1,000 years left of that type of uranium. And, and this is 1,000 years left, but we have to continue to dig it up, or we've already we, ca- like captured and it's being stored somewhere? We have to dig it up. Okay, we have to it. mine all this. Got it. And then now if we were to switch to a fast reactor, mm-hmm. we could, tra- it's called transmute the uranium-238, that's the remaining 99.3%, into plutonium, which could then, uh, which then if it receives the neutron, will split. And one of the things that's fascinating about that is that we were talking about those control rods trying to get mm-hmm. that magic one. Mm-hmm. Well, in a, a fast reactor where you're creating your own fuel, it's called breeding, you actually take one of those your first neutron to keep the reaction going, your second neutron actually is going to create your, your new fuel, and then you have to deal with whatever's left, a little 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 extra. Got it. And, and so would it be fair to say that the uranium-235, that, that less than 1%, um, is that harder to find than the uranium-238, and that's why there, there's such disparity in the, in the percentages? Or is, am I missing something there? Um, that's just how, it, like, if you go pick up a chunk of uranium, you find, if, if I went out to a uranium mine and picked it up, it's just going to be comprised of 99.3% uranium-238, 0.7% uranium-235. Got it. It's just, it's all, that's just how it is. With the exception, there is one location where it's different. Okay. And that's the natural reactor that ran 2 billion years ago on 100,000-year cycles called Oklo out in um, Africa. Wait, what is this? Yeah, it literally is a natural reactor that ran for, like, a million years in uh, somewhere in Africa. I don't remember specifically. It's called Oklo. Um, there's a co- Gen 4 company that takes that as their name. But uh, it has lower levels of, of uranium-235 because it consumed it to, op- to operate. It had literally, you know, 2 billion years ago, we had this natural reactor that operated wow. before human beings existed yeah and, and so as we think through this um there's it sounds like uranium dependency we've got to continue to mine uranium i don't think that there's a lot of people who are necessarily uh concerned about uranium existing it's more so we just got to go get it right yeah. and so there's there's a cost to that etc um this other idea around this fast reactor is the ability to take the uranium 238 and change it into plutonium i think you said yes. and then use that as the the fuel source um, is there controversy around moving to fast reactors? Is it just a, an expense? Like, like what, what's the, why would we not do that? Well, one is the, the regulations under the Carter administration. Um, they 
they two things that they did which kind of prevents us from from going to fast reactors and reducing our waste stockpile we can't reprocess waste and we're not actually allowed to use plutonium reactors okay there's a concern because when you hear plutonium people think weapons um, the plutonium that, that the U.S. has for weapons was generated in special reactors designed to make weapons-grade plutonium. Got it. The plutonium that exists in, and we generate plutonium in our, in our current reactors. That's actually the waste that everyone's concerned about the last 100,000 years. But it actually um, is not comprised of the, it's not pure enough to be used for weapons. So, so it's non-weapons-grade yes, plutonium. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much garbage if you want to make weapons with it. It would be a very expensive process that was mm. actually very harmful and could be deadly and, you know, be easier to cause issues. Yeah. <laughs> it'd be easier to do you a know, creative reactor to, to make if you want to make plutonium for weapons. Okay. So, so before we go deeper down the, the nuclear kind of rabbit hole, um, one of the things that fascinates me, right? So I came into this, I knew absolutely nothing about it. Um, and I really started to uh, research and, and look into it is when I think of renewable or clean energy, I think of hydro, I think of wind, I think of solar, right? Um, th th there's plenty of others that, that um, people put in that category, whether they should be or not. But one of the biggest issues that I did not understand before I started looking at nuclear is um, there's a, a space and an environmental impact to uh, implementing a lot of that stuff, right? And so obviously with solar, you need space to install the solar panels so that the sun can hit them and capture that energy. With wind, you need to clear out space so that you can put the turbines, right? So that they can spin and, mm -hmm. and obviously capture the energy. Um, nuclear, and before we were talking, um, has a much smaller footprint. Maybe kind of just talk through what that footprint difference is, and then we can get into some of the things that nuclear may solve that those others um, suffer even once they're installed. Yeah, so the uh, the energy density, that's what the, the U.S. That, Department... That's a smart, intelligent yeah. way to say it, okay. Yeah, that's, well, that's that's what the, you know, the if you go to the Office of Nuclear Energy, that's the term, you know, it's it's good to be a little dense. That's that's their, their comment. But, uh, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, if you take a one... You know, gigawatt, uh, you know, power plant. This is a nuclear power plant, and you want to build a wind or solar farm that's of equivalent nameplate capacity. It requires somewhere between 750 and 1,000 times the land space. Okay. So, so if I have a, a one gigawatt nuclear facility and I want one gigawatt of wind or solar, I need 750 to 1,000 x the amount of space in order to generate that much power. Yeah, and it's you need about 13 acres to do that with nuclear. So now you you could do the you can do the math. But what a lot of people don't talk about, specifically the uh, the wind and solar folks, is what's called capacity factor. Nuclear operates at 92 percent capacity factor, and we can shut them down when we want to. Wind and solar operate at well, wind about 25 to 40%, solar somewhere between 10 and 20%. So now if you want that same output capacity to match nuclear, right, you're looking for wind and solar, that's 750 to 1,000. Now you're looking at, you know, what is that, five times, you know, five to 10 times that. Mm -hmm. And then for and, and just so I understand the the capacity factor means that if the nuclear reactor is on ninety two percent of the time and it can do a gigawatt of power, then you can start to actually calculate here's how much power it's going to generate over a year, over two years, five years, ten years, etc. But on the solar or the wind, it can't generate power one hundred percent of the time, right? And that's where those numbers you're throwing out ten to twenty percent for uh, I think you said solar, and then twenty to forty percent for wind, and so you actually have to have even more than just a gigawatt of capacity because the capacity usage is lower. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you look at, you know, 
solar's not producing energy at night, right? I mean, and wind's not producing, if the wind's not blowing, and if the wind's blowing too hard. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so wind, because you don't want the turbine blades turning too fast, and so they'll literally shut them down when it's too, when the wind is too fast, because it'll actually cause them to, to rip apart. There's some great videos on YouTube for that, uh, you know, cows fleeing because of these giant wind turbines. Um, and when you look at it, there's a great, and, and I'll have to shoot it to you, but there's a great infographic at a company called Thorcon that shows, a, a, I think, a 12-megawatt um, wind turbine, and the blades are longer than their 500-megawatt power unit. Really? <laughs> the blades are, I mean, if you stack the three blades together, it's bigger than their whole 500-megawatt unit, and there's like a 12-megawatt. And when you take the capacity factor, you know, and you're looking at it, um, and going back to the capacity factor, right? You know, nuclear, when we operate it, we typically, you know, we ramp it up, put it to 100%, keep it there. It's our base load energy in the U.S. And then wind and solar, as, you know, the wind starts blowing, the power comes up. When it stops, it comes down, so it mm -hmm. varies. Um, and then you have, you know, uh, you know, solar where the sun is shining. If it's a cloudy day, you're not producing as much energy. Um, you know, if you get water spots on it, you start abrasing the surface. You know, the, they, they degrade over time, too. And one of the things about nuclear that a lot of people don't know is that actually over time we have been generating more power with it to the point where with 97 reactors in 2018, we generated more energy for uh, with nuclear than we have in it. the history of the United States. And that even goes back to when we had 120 reactors. Mm -hmm. so, so we used to have 120 reactors. We're down, down. We're now down to 97. But those 97 are producing more power than we did when we had 120, which means that on a per power plant basis, we're actually getting more efficient and more output per power plant. Absolutely, yeah, you get it. Yeah, what what was the reason to go from 120 down to 97? Well, um, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, there uh, there were many reasons why. You know. Uh, Competitive elect, you know, electricity prices driving driving the the, the plants out. Um, uh, so a lot of the a lot of the plants that get shut down were the smaller uh, single unit facilities. So if you look in the U.S., most most of the facilities that stay running are over 800 megawatts and uh, per reactor, or you have multiple reactors. Um, and because it comes down to a, a, a you know people thing, now if you look at a like a, a natural gas plant. 80% of your cost is equipment, 20% is people. If you look at a nuclear power plant, 80% of your cost is people, 20% is equipment. Wow. Because you have so many people operating these things. You know, if you look at a, um, uh, so there's a, uh, I'll use uh, Duke Energies. Um, they have uh, their smallest facilities, an 811 megawatt power plant that has 780 employees. They're, a lot of employees. Yeah. Their largest power plant produces 2,069 megawatts and has 1,050 employees. Right? So for 300 extra employees, you're getting almost three times the power output. Mm -hmm. And so that's... So the baseline number of employees per power plant is just very high. Yes. Yeah. So, and yeah, so you have to have a minimum number and then, you know, you can add more units, but you're not... Like, I don't need to have, you know, you know I need to have reactor engineers that know how the reactors work. But I don't need to add, you know, if I have two, say, for one facility, I don't necessarily need to add two for the next, for the next reactor. I might only need to add one mm -hmm. because I designed my units to be the same. So, and then if I have a third, I might even, you know, if I have a three, you know, I might not even need a third person, mm -hmm. right? I can just, or a, a fourth person, I'm just fine with three. Um, or with operators, things like that, um, you know, you typically have a shift manager, a unit supervisor, and two uh, licensed reactor operators per unit. Well, if I have a 
three unit facility with one control room, I have one shift manager, three unit supervisors. Right now, I've reduced the number of people just by two right there. For sure. And, and so when I hear that, uh, you know, we had 120, we're down to 97 now. Uh, 97, there's 50 states. I would have thought, oh, that's probably like two per state, right? Just easy math and, and uh, probably a stupid assumption, but that would have been my assumption. When I was looking at it, it's actually only about 30 states have reactors. What is the logic behind those 30 states versus the other 20 not having it? Is it regulations? Is it something to do with the environment? What's the, the thought process there? So I can speak specifically about some states. So the okay. state of Oregon had used to have a plant, had one single unit reactor called Trojan that was shut down in the 1990s. I can speak about it because I grew up in Oregon. Okay. Um, and uh, when it was shut, well, when it was operating, the Oregon legislation passed a requirement that for Oregon to build any new nuclear required a, a national repository. So you've heard of Yucca Mountain, right? So a national repository for spent nuclear fuel. Okay, and this is uh, a place to take the nuclear waste and put it somewhere away from people. Yes. So, okay. Yeah. And so Yucca Mountain, you know, we were building it and then we shut it down, I think, 2009 timeframe. Uh, shut down the process uh, and so there's several states that that's a requirement um several states nuclear didn't make sense for like wyoming very sparse you know when you're talking these large plants now you got large transmission lines mm -hmm. when a lot of times it's better to do small mm -hmm. right so you know if, if you're looking you know say a small gas turbine um or when we get into the new nuclear we could talk about um you know there's these new nuclear the way they can you know instead of a 800 megawatt module they have 60 megawatt modules and they can come in single unit three pack six pack or 12 pack so and this like is beer yeah exactly yeah that's yeah, new scales design they're all about the beer um <laughs> for sure yeah and, and so okay so there's certain states that have nuclear there's certain states that don't um and you already kind of hit on a little bit right is i think one of the biggest critiques against it whether it's uh reasonable or not or accurate or not is people fear nuclear because they only know one of three things either they know nothing about it and it sounds scary right you know i've heard of nuclear bombs before like i don't want that near me two is they've heard of three mile island uh, fukushima chernobyl right the, these places mm -hmm. where there's been issues uh or three is they actually are somewhat sophisticated and their belief is hey we're great at having reliable power generation but we don't know what to do with the waste right we don't have a great solution for the waste so maybe let's go through um all three of those things but um before I do that, just as a kind of like to keep people understanding, this isn't a what are we going to do in the future, right? Nuclear energy is 20% of all electricity generated in the United States, right? It makes up more than 55% of all clean energy in the United States. And so um, it's not a thing of like, what are we going to do in the future? It, like, it's already here. We're, we're doing this and we've been doing it for a long time. You know, you told me before we started recording, 20% of the electricity in the United States since 1990. Right. Yeah. So, so it's been going on for a long time that we've been doing this. People just haven't talked about it or, or, or just didn't spend the time to really learn about it, I think. Yeah, I mean, and that's true. And, and I think at peak, it was 40 percent of our energy production in the in the 70 in the late 70s, early 80s, right around the time of the three mile island accident. Um, you know, you, you did a great job summarizing. Um, I described the issues in three words, and that's waste weapons and meltdowns. Oh, okay. Um, waste weapons or meltdowns. Yeah. Okay, yeah. All right. Go so, through. And so. All right. The waste. Right. Um, there's two responses to that. One is is that the waste are stored in, you know, first it, when it's pulled from the reactors, put in a spent fuel pool uh, to cool down over time. You got what is a spent fuel pool? It's basically, a, it looks like a big giant swimming pool that has old used fuel rods in it. 
and it just sits in there to cool down because you can't you don't want them to get too hot so these are the fuel rods that had the uranium in them that were in the reactor yep. itself right we now take them and literally submerge them in liquid that literally looks like a swimming pool in terms of the size of the thing yeah, but, it's, but it's liquid that is being submerged to cool it off yeah it's okay. an olympic it's an olympic swimming pool and uh, there's 20 feet of water over the fuel Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. these are not small. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and so really the reason for putting it into the spent fuel pool is to cool off the rod. Yes, yeah. So um, there's something called residual heat. Um, so when the atoms split, you have these, they're called fission products, and those fission products take time to decay. This is the term people talk about, the long-term of waste. Most of those fission products will be gone in 300 years, and we could talk about that as, as part of the waste solution as well. But those fission products, they, they generate heat when they are losing their radioactivity. Okay. So that's the concern. That the toxicity of is the radioactivity that everyone talks about. So how long in the uh, spent fuel pool, if I have a rod, I put it in there, how long do I leave it in there on average? It's typically about a decade. Oh, wow. So yeah. is it, oh, okay. I, I was just, thinking like when you, you know, burn your finger and you run under cold water for two minutes in the sink, this is not that. This is you're leaving it in there for 10 plus years yeah. to cool off so yeah so typically wow. they're in about a decade and then they and then they move them into a, a what's called a, a spent fuel cask okay what is that it's it's they look like giant pills for the most part but okay. they're 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 um they have a stainless steel internal liner they have concrete around that and then stainless steel they're welded and then they're filled with helium okay uh so one it sounds almost like humans have caskets these have uh these casts yeah right that's, that's that's a that's a great analogy. Okay, and so you put the spent fuel rods into this cast, uh, and you close it up. Why does the helium go into it? Um, the helium goes in there so that remember that there's still some heat left. Okay, and if if it was in a vacuum, um, it wouldn't it, it would, would be good. It would, it would it would it would it would there would be thermal you know insulation and it would start to it would potentially melt. Um, helium's a great conductor of heat as okay. a gas, and so they pressurize the helium so that it'll it'll conduct that heat to the outside and cool it but you've allowed them to cool sufficiently to where just the you know the air out in the middle of, of you know southern florida out in miami mm -hmm. you know will is sufficient to keep them from having any problems got it so i take the rods i put them in uh this immersion pool if you will, or yep. whatever i take them out a decade later i put it into this cast uh it's got all the fancy inner lining outer lining concrete etc i seal it with the helium what do I do with that cast once I've got the rods in there? So they all sit at the sites. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, is, this so, con is this controversial thing that from the, the, the critics of nuclear, do they not like that? I mean, that's, this is the waste that everyone is concerned about. Okay, got it. And, I mean, as far as the quantity of this, if you took all the casks and you brought them into, um, uh, if you put them on a football field, it'd only be 50 feet deep. So I could cover 100 yards, 50 feet deep. Yep. It would be all of For all the spent fuel from commercial operations in the United States. And that's been how long? 60 years. 60 years. Okay. So as you're putting those on site, is it we don't have a better place to go put them or we actually think the best place to put them well, is on site? Well, we talked about Yucca Mountain earlier. They were supposed to all be shipped to Yucca Mountain, but since Yucca Mountain... The, the whole country was going to go to this one location, Yucca Mountain. Yes, and and the utilities actually funded Yucca Mountain. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so those, I mean, there was some taxpayer dollars to it, but it was primarily funded by the different energy companies that had nuclear reactors. Do you know why that place specifically was chosen? 
Um, it's or just far away from everybody. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was in the Nevada desert in a mountain mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. I feel like the, especially Americans, we just feel like, uh, the desert inside of a mountain, like I ah, put area 51, <laughs> put the, put the cast, et cetera. Well, right? and we actually have a long-term repository. The government, they built one called, it's called the waste isolation pilot plant pilot program. It's called the WIP facility. It's in Carlsbad, New Mexico. Okay. And that's where the U S sends its, um, waste from weapons production okay uh, and now that's uh, we we're not generating new material for weapons yep. but there's a lot of legacy waste you're, you're there's a lot of stuff in the news talking about that uh that uh sarcophagus thing out in um marshall islands you've got hanford you've got um uh the national security site in nevada there's you know the u.s has a lot of yep. labs we'll, we'll, we'll get to the weapons in a second yeah. <laughs> the uh, i got a lot of questions about the weapons so right now i take the cast that have the rods sealed with helium i leave them on site that's for a land-based nuclear power plant what happens on the submarines and the aircraft um the fuel is removed and uh it is shipped out to uh, idaho got it and i'm assuming there's just one repository where all u.s military whatever goes in yeah Got it. And so um, why is it once it's inside of that uh, cast, it's on site. So is it safe? Is it a thing where people are worried about uh, the the seal may break? Like, like what is the concern, I guess, on the waste side? And what happens if, let's say, a worker at the facility goes and picks up one and doesn't have protective clothing on but like walk me through kind of how radioactive are they and then what's the concern from from the critics so you can walk up and hug him and receive little, i'm not going to do that but yeah, you explain I mean, why I, yeah but there's little, you'll get little to no dose um you'd probably get more radiation dose eating a banana uh than you would from hugging one of those casks really and, yeah. and it's because not so much that the fuel, the spent fuel rods don't have radiation, it's that they're locked into the actual yeah. cast itself. And so the outside of the cast is not seeing any radiation. Yeah, so the, the stainless steel and the um, concrete are acting as shielding. Got it, okay. So yeah, it's, it's providing shielding for that. Now, if that fuel was unshielded um, and you drove a truck up to, or drove a car at, at it at 55 miles an hour, you would not survive. Oh, okay. So if it was just sitting on the side of the road, yeah. there was nothing protecting it, and you just drove right by it. Yeah, that's that's, and that's why we have the twenty feet of water over them. Um, and you know, the people that work on this stuff, they are very, you know, wary or wary. They're very um, sensitive Careful, to, sensitive. yeah, sensitive to what they're doing. Got it. Um, and so you explained why the helium is locked in in the cast. What's up with the water? Why is the water, is that a better protection than the um, than the uh, inner lining, outer lining in the concrete? So you're talking about in the, in the spent fuel pool? Yeah, in the, in the pool. Um, well, it's, ava- it's readily available. Um, the other thing is, is that when, they're, when uh, commercial reactors are, they're um, removing the fuel during their outages, and they, they have to do this every 18 months, 18 to 24 months. Okay. They have to literally take the whole reactor out. They take about a, they swap it's about a third swap they take about a they bring a third new fuel in a third of the fuel is completely consumed and then they basically have to reassemble the reactor because mm-hmm. the the way the rods are to make sure you have the right the right you know heat loading in there um so to do that they literally uh fill the reactor it's called the vessel cavity up with water they pick the fuel rods up they move it through water into the fuel building. Oh, and wow. Then, yeah, so it's all done underwater. So it's always, always in water. Yep. Yeah. It, it's fascinating to me how um, 
the entire process, right, is so compartmentalized. And, and, and at the end of the day, I, th I think one of the things I took away the most from the research and, and the conversations I had with you is this is science, right? And if we get the science right, then you get into how are the systems designed, what are the protocols that the humans have to interact with those systems, uh, and we got to make sure that we're right on the science, right? And if yeah. we do that, then we can create safe systems. Um, okay, so I think you've done a good job describing like how we deal with the waste right now. We'll come back to that in a second. But there's been these three big events where um, there's been issues, right? So uh, the waste is one, but these accidents is another. I forget the the three words you used. Yeah, it was waste, weapons, and meltdowns. So okay. this, this falls under your meltdowns. Meltdowns. Okay. So let's go maybe through the three, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, and Chernobyl, and maybe just describe like what happened in each one of them. All right. Well, I'm, first off, I'm going to say that there have been eight meltdowns planet-wide of commercial reactors total. Okay. Ever. So, yeah, so ever. And three of those are Fukushima, and two of them were in France. Okay. So it, on same site, right? So so that covers five of the eight, and then there was Three Mile Island and uh, Chernobyl, and I believe Russia had one other. Now, we talk about Three Mile Island because that's the only true commercial meltdown. There were some test reactors that melted down, but these were we were doing silly things at that point. We didn't know what we were doing. Because um, that was like in the 60, uh, 79, right? Yeah, 79, yeah. 79. yeah. So 79. I'm cheating. I have notes. You have your brain. I have yeah. notes. <laughs> um, so Three Mile Island, and, uh, you know, it's, it's there's, it, was, it was an operator error. The reactor was brand new. And when I mean brand new, it had gone online for the first time two months prior to the accident. Oh, wow. So, you know, you're looking at reactors. They're licensed for 40 years. Or extend most of them to 60, and now we even have some being extended 80 years, and this thing lasted two months before we destroyed it. Um, but they had... Uh, you think that guy got fired? Uh, or he died? I, no, no one died. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, no one died, and the public only received about one one dental x-ray's worth of radiation. Is that a lot? No. No, okay. No, you get four typically when you go to the dentist. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. No, it's not a lot of radiation. Uh, I, well, I'll just ask you now why it's on top of my head. Uh, somebody recently, a dentist actually recently told me that Grand Central has a lot of radiation because of the uh, the materials that it's used uh, in the construction. Probably the He's, granite. Yeah, he said it's like a big radiation box. So now I'm like scared to walk through Grand Central. Well, um, there's actually a video and I tweeted out there of a, uh, a nuclear engineer that has uh, uranium oxide, which is the fuel um, that we use. Like literally yeah. he had nuclear fuel in his hand and it's in a powder form and he literally licks it and swallows. No, he does not. He does. Why, how can he do that? It's... It's radioactive. It's not that radioactive. Oh man, you're you're getting me in a weird world now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So let, let's go back to Three Mile Island. <laughs> so, uh, op, like um, operator error. Yeah, there's so, radiation that goes out, but it's not that high. In yeah. Terms of so what they had was they had um, they had a relief valve. Or they had a, they had a relief valve that had a slight leak by, and so there's a temperature indication down that's beyond that relief valve. So relief valve basically to keep the pre make sure that you don't get too much pressure, and then you cause a Chernobyl event, which is, you know, overpressurize your plant, a steam explosion, that's bad. Um, so this relief valve was leaking, and so the, the piping downstream was getting hot. Mm -hmm. And so they had this indication that they were living with. And so when they had their problem, the relief valve lifted, as, as it should. should, and then it didn't reseat, so it didn't shut. And so they started basically dumping their water out of the reactor, and they actually lowered the pressure to the point where uh, there's a piece of equipment called the pressurizer, which keeps is a pressurized water reactor, so the pressurizer keeps it pressurized. And it, it uses 
electric heaters to keep a much higher pressure. And basically, they what they call it, transferred the bubble. So they basically moved the steam void in there. Now, steam does not conduct heat very well. And so they basically caused that. The, the fuel assemblies, the fuel rods, they got too hot, and they melted. It's kind of like um, you ever seen uh, in uh, Germany with the boots when they uh, chug beer and they have the the bubble and as it they turn yeah. the boots right yeah 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 pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty similar <laughs> um, okay so that's Three Mile Island I think that that's probably the lesser known of the three right and yeah. mainly just because Fukushima and Chernobyl have been uh, more recent and. Also, Chernobyl now has a, a whole uh, yeah. documentary series or, or whatever it was that was created on television. What happened at Chernobyl? All right, so Chernobyl, which happened in 86, um, is that uh, they were running a test that it was basically forced on them. Now, the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union at that time, now, now Chernobyl's actually physically located in Ukraine. Okay. So, um, But the former Soviet Union, they wanted to run this test to prove, and this is the part that blows my mind, is it was to prove that in the event that they were to lose uh, off-site power, as it's known, that as the the turbine was spinning down, it could keep the reactor cool. So they were basically running this test to ensure that the reactor could not melt down. And it went way wrong. So bas basically saying, uh, we're going to try to melt it down and show you that this system will prevent it from melting down. Essentially, yes. Geniuses. Um, yeah, geniuses, yeah. <laughs> Um, so what happened is well, that, well, actually they would be geniuses if it works, if it but, worked, yeah. but if well, it doesn't work, then they're idiots, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so they had some design flaws. They were operating, um, at too low of powers. They had to withdraw these, these things called control rods. Uh, they had X, it was 48 that had to be completely inserted at all times and they withdrew them all. So they're violating their safety procedures. They're doing a test that the reactor engineers were completely against, because um, you told me earlier that there was four separate teams or kind of divisions inside of Chernobyl. Three, the first three that they went to said, no way, I'm not running that test. They knew that it was a bad thing to do. And somehow the fourth, whether they were forced or agreed or whatever, they ended up running the test. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Got and it. So, yeah. And, and they're running the test on, uh, my understanding is, a different design than U.S.-based reactors. Yes. Yeah. The, so U.S.-based, U.S. reactors don't have that same flaw that exists. Not none of our reactors have that. So, and as they were running the test, they had what's called a power excursion. Power started coming up, but they were at these such low powers that the equipment couldn't respond properly. And uh, when they finally went to take some action, basically they had overheated the reactor to the point where it underwent a steam explosion, right? So, you know, it, it's, if you take, you know, the best way to describe it is you just take a jar and you put some water in it mm -hmm. and you seal it up and you put it on a stove it's eventually going to you know explode right because you've developed too much steam in there don't try that at home yeah. kids <laughs> <laughs> um you put glass all over the place well in this case yeah they literally you know they, they shot fuel all over the place right going back to that hole you know drive a truck up to it and got so it now they've and so earlier you said three mile island was one whatever level of uh radiation the dentist is four uh, i forget what the yeah, yeah, uh yeah, yeah. So yeah, so one one dental X-ray, which is about three millirem, and then as opposed oh, to oh one dental X-ray, yeah, one okay, dental X-ray. Yeah. How much at Chernobyl? I'm assuming way more. Um, well, the, Chernobyl killed 31 people. Okay, and those were all plant-based employees. Or um, I, I I don't know the specifics on each okay. person. I think some were firefighters and got um, it. But people who they weren't civilians that live next door. Correct. Got it. And um, so that 31 people that are killed 
uh, one of the things I guess is how much of that is explosion related, right? Like there's this big explosion and they die in the explosion versus the actual radiation itself. Um, there were, I know that there were, there were several people that were killed, but the majority were from the radiation exposure. From the radiation. Okay. Yeah, so, so basically this is a perfect example of, Hey, if things go really, really wrong and this stuff is not done correctly, if there is human error, if the systems are, have design flaws, people can die because there's radiation. Yeah, correct. Um, now, one of the things that's fascinating is is that every reactor in the United States has what's called a containment. Okay, right. What is so that? it's a it's a big it's a steel lined. We're going back to the stainless steel lined with concrete steel reinforced. Now the rebar is literally you know about three inches in diameter. So mm -hmm. this is not you know this is not the rebar you go buy at Home Depot. This is you know. So so what you're basically saying is just like that spent fuel rods put inside of the cast basically the entire facility is put inside of a cast essentially essentially there's a, yeah there's an inner lining a concrete and outer lining well, there's only an inner liner there's okay. not yeah um but and that's I, to contain anything that happens with inside of yeah that. so yeah. if 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 u.s designs can't undergo a chernobyl explosion but if they did it would be contained inside the containment now that being said the u.s actually had its its own uh, Chernobyl event that no one talks about. Oh, really? Yeah, so there was an army reactor. So I know you were army. Um, there was an army reactor. Now, this is where the Navy guy gives me yeah. a hard time. Don't Go worry, ahead. it was a sailor involved too. Um, <laughs> there, it, was, it was called SL-1, then it was out in the- SL-1. Yes, yes, right. uh, stationary light water reactor one. Um, and so they were uh, running some kind of evolution. Now, this is so early on in nuclear that those rods I was talking about, like we use a switch that drives some motors and, mm -hmm. and it moves the rods up and down. They moved them manually. Probably not healthy. <laughs> well, it's really not healthy when, you know, he was told to withdraw at three inches and whether he just decided he didn't want to have his life anymore or um, Miss Hurden tried to withdraw at 13 inches, but he, you know, we talk about they control that reaction. Mm -hmm. But you haven't. You're you're relying on humans to do this, mm -hmm. right? Not our good. <laughs> our plants don't rely on humans to do that anymore, and that's yeah. one of those those reasons. Got it. And, and this was a land-based power plant, or this was a like a submarine aircraft. It was a a land-based military reactor. Got it. Okay. And so that happened. 1961. In, okay, so this is way before even uh, Three Mile Island, yeah. Chernobyl, etc. Got it. Um, yeah. It, even when I was researching, I didn't see that at all. I yeah, wonder if it's because yeah. it's a military-based one or something. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's one of the fascinating ones that most people don't know about. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's – and it contained itself. All three of the operators were killed. It's the worst mm -hmm. by-death nuclear accident in the United States. Um, so, but because of but that – But because of the containment. containment yeah, it was, everything was contained inside of it. That site's been cleaned up now. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate that three people lost their lives. But okay, so speaking of containment and the lack of containment, I think Fukushima is at least in my lifetime the only thing that we've known in terms of like nuclear is bad, right? Type meme. What happened there? And then literally the only thing that I can remember when that occurred was you know people walking around in the white suits and with the gloves and the goggles and everything, right? And just like <laughs> it's like everything's gonna die there, right? Yeah. And so I don't know what's fact and fiction and kind of how that occurred and was there containment, was there not? Maybe just talk through that with so, us. So the Fukushima reactors, we actually have this exact same design in the US in certain locations, okay. right? So it's they are a boiling water reactor, which is different than the Three Mile and Chernobyl. So instead of having, yeah, we, we, won't, it's that, we don't need to go into that technical detail, but um, 
So the the earthquake happened, and then the reactor they shut down the reactors because of the earthquake, and then they had a tidal wave come in and it washed out their emergency system. So when the reactor shut down, so just real quick, this is really important, right? Is this was not human error to start with. This was not system design flaw. There was a massive earthquake that then created a tsunami. That tsunami brought water. For those that don't know, a tsunami brings water, right? Yeah. Brought water onto the plant, and that's where some of these issues started. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So normally, because we were talking about those 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 rods that are in the spent fuel pool, and we talk about you know that we got to worry about those fission products. They get hot for a long mm-hmm. period of time. We keep them in there for a decade, right? Mm-hmm. So when a reactor shuts down, they have systems in place to start cooling, keeping that reactor cool, to cool it down, to keep that, that fuel from you know melting down. That's, that's the whole purpose of these emergency systems. Well, the tsunami was so large at Fu- Fukushima that it actually exceeded what the uh, Japanese nuclear regulatory requirements were. It was higher than that. So they, you know, you, it exceeded that, washed out all their safety systems. Wow. So they couldn't keep the reactor cool. Um, and so that's what happened. Now, the explosions that occurred, which is actually funny, which is uh, funny, it's interesting, is that three reactors melted down and they, they operated, there were a total of six reactors, there were three of them were defueled, but they were in pairs. Mm-hmm. And one of the reactors that exploded actually had no fuel in it. How does that happen? So what happens is that um, when you get the, the fuel rods themselves, they're, they're a tube, that outer tube is made uh, with zirconium Okay. And when zirconium is in contact with water at high temperatures above 2,000 degrees, it rapidly oxidizes and creates hydrogen gas. <laughs> I'm not a scientist, but I know that that leads to bad things sometimes. <laughs> and so the hydrogen gas was filling up their, yeah, it wasn't their containments. It did fill up their containments, but it filled up their reactor mm-hmm. buildings, the auxiliary buildings. And then it got to an explosive level and exploded. The explosions were unnecessary if the Japanese government had allowed the um, the operators to vent as they were requesting. The reactor buildings would not have would not have exploded, and the accident would not be as bad. Okay, so the tsunami hits. They wash out these emergency systems, right? Which basically the regulators had regulations in place, but they just never imagined a tsunami this big, etc. Yep. Um, when those emergency systems get washed out. How does the explosion interact with that washing out of the emergency systems? Like, what, like, is it the explosion then like breaks containment and then that's what happens, or like, like how does the uh, explosion play? So into the that? so the explosion actually. So you have the 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 containment is actually it's a it, it's shaped like a bullet. Okay. And it's inside their reactor building. It's on a boiling water reactor. That's how it is. And you have your um, and so the hydrogen gas is being vented in there. So the the cooling system is all down below all that stuff. And so the hydrogen gas is hydrogen's lighter than, than air, so it it goes up, mm-hmm. and so it's rising into the the reactor building itself, mm-hmm. and that's when it exploded. And, and they, they wanted to vent it out. And they wanted to continue vent- to rise out. Yes, but and they, they were, weren't allowed to. And and the reason why they weren't allowed to is because of this magical word called tritium. Tritium. Okay, tritium. What is yeah, that? It's just a heavy. It's an extra heavy form of water. Tritium is an extra. Oh, sorry, heavy it's form an of extra water. heavy form of hydrogen. Of hydrogen, okay. Right, and you know, tritium is generated naturally in the atmosphere. So you've got, I've got a glass of water right here. I'm going to consume some tritium in mm-hmm. front of you. <laughs> and why are people scared of tritium? Tritium sounds like one of those words that, if people don't know what it is, it sounds scary. But it, what is the fear there? Well, the fear. Well, one, it's radioactive, right? And everything radioactive just sounds scary okay. because 
people don't necessarily understand what radioactive means. The other thing is, is that uh, when you talk about a thermal nuclear weapon, so you've got, mm -hmm. you know, the Hiroshima, Nagasaki, um, which were just atomic weapons, mm -hmm. right? Well, the thermal nuclear weapon requires um, fusion mm -hmm. and tritium is the key for fusion. So basically you have more, feels like bomb material. <laughs> Got it. Okay. And basically, they didn't want to allow the tritium, yep. right, air quotes, to go up into the air. Yep. Right. Okay. And potentially affect the population. Now, so we have the Fukushima event. And Fukushima killed zero people, by the way. Okay. So nobody died. Nobody died. When that happens, what is the radiation levels outside of that containment? And then kind of why, and maybe this is just the salacious media, but why do we see on television people walking around in the white suits and kind of all that so, stuff? So the purpose of the white suits is if you have um, any kind of radioactive dust, okay, that it stays on the white suit. So you take those off. Um, they're called protective clothing. And the idea is that I don't want to take that home. Okay. So basically it's while I'm in a potentially radioactive area, I may, the suit isn't necessarily going to protect me from the radiation. What it's going to do is it's going to prevent me from transporting any radioactive material back to some other location. Yeah. So when, when a, a nuclear reactor go, undergoes an outage, um, you, you wear those, we, I mean, when you everyone work, puts yeah, them on. yeah, everyone puts them on there when you're, when you're working in the containment building. Okay. Got it. So. And, and then, um, in terms of, uh, the actual damage that was created by Fukushima, right? To me, it's, hey, there was this huge issue. Was there actually negative impact on the environment, on people, et cetera? Or was it all pretty self-contained and people just talk about it because there was an explosion, et cetera? Yeah, so, the, I mean, because the fact there were three explosions and there were three reactors that were melted down and destroyed. Um, there, So you have the equipment aspect of it. There were... Uh, Which scares people in general. Yes. Right? Yep. And, and then the, the fear of the radiation that the Japanese government amplified by forced evacuations actually caused, uh, uh, I believe, several hundred people that were, um, say, uh, elderly to, you know, when they went to transport them were not, they did it in a rushed manner and, and ended up, they, they lost their lives because of fear. Really? Yeah. So, so there fear, was people who lost their lives, but not because of radiation, lost their lives due to um, elderly, I don't have medical care, et cetera. Yeah, medical care, well, you, you need intense care, and then we're going to transport you in a rushed manner when you didn't need to rush it. Got it. I mean, the, the radiation levels that uh, that are on the site are such that you could stand there for years and not have issues mm -hmm. on the site. And, and so this is probably a good time to talk about, uh, again, I'm coming at this so uneducated, right, that um, I'm looking at this as how to understand nuclear power generation and what it can do for the United States and other countries, but also understanding, you know, the other side of this where people are fear fearful, et cetera. What does radiation do to the human body at certain levels, right? Because I'm assuming that it kind of ratchets, ratchets up. Yeah. I go to the dentist, I get radiation, right? I joke all the time. I say, when you get on an airplane, you get radiation. When you go through the thing that spins at security, you get radiation. So I'm still alive. You're still alive, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you're, you get somewhere between, depending on what source they talk about, somewhere between 150 and 500 milliram a year from natural sources. Okay, 150 to 500 milliram. Yes. Right. Okay. To give you an idea, to give you, you know, uh, a, a baseline, uh, in 20 years of naval service, I received 247 millirem from nuclear reactors. Okay. So 100 to 500 is kind of average, just naturally. Naturally, yeah. 240. And, and the dumb question, but how do you measure that? 
How do, how like, do can, I, can I walk around with something that tells me how much radiation I'm Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, well, so, and it's funny, and I'll, I'll talk about that, is that uh, we call it, they're called TLDs, thermoluminescent dosimeters. It's the original ones we had to look like little fat pens. Okay. And uh, they measured everything. So when you wore them, um, you know, you got natural and unnatural radiation. You got all of it. And the new ones we have, they're, they're little squares and they discriminate. So the first half of my naval career, we used the, the other the ones, pens. the pens. And so I would be in port on a shutdown reactor and my monthly exposure was about nine millirem mm -hmm. underway. And I was the watchstander that sat that was closest to the reactor as it was operating. I got four. Wow. And I wasn't getting any from that reactor when it was shut down. It was all from just the, the, the sun and yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. And, and so um, that's like, let's call that low level, no concern level um, radiation exposure. What are the levels in which people should be concerned and like what happens to the human body? Right. Because so, in my mind, it's like you get exposure to radiation, you melt and like you're dead. Yeah. So, um, it all occurs at the cellular level, okay. and uh, the way it was taught to me is they, we call it good daughter, dead daughter, bad daughter, no daughter. Okay, explain that. So um, what happens is that the uh, the radiation strikes the the DNA of the nucleus, and good daughter, the uh, the cell repairs itself, divides normally. Okay. All right. Then there's bad daughter, and this is the one that scares most people because it's hard to understand. Is that it it um, damages the 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 DNA in the in the nucleus of the cell. It splits and it's got a problem. This okay. is the cancer that everyone's concerned about. Got it. So, so there's some sort of <clears throat> mutation to the cells. Yes. Yep. Then there's the uh, dead daughter, which is the DNA is damaged, cell splits, the cells both die. The new cells both die. The daughter okay. cells do. And that's good or bad? Uh, it's neither. Neither. Okay. Um, well, in that, well if you, in radiation sickness, if you get large quantities of radiation, Be that's bad. a problem. Yep. Um, and then you have n no daughter. Um, which is that it just basically radiation just kills the cell. Got it. So those last two are radiation sickness with the, and then you have the cancer for the, de the bad daughter. Um, the way it was trained to me was that if you took a, pot, a group of 10,000 people, about 1,000 of them are going to die of cancer. Okay. All right. At what level? Um, just normal, natural, like. Just living a normal oh, life. Okay, got it. If you took those same ten thousand people and you exposed them to one rem or one thousand millirem of radiation over their lifetime, potentially one thousand and one would now die of cancer. Okay, so so there's a very small, very impact. small, yeah. So to so one thousand millirem. Yes. Right. Okay. And when you think about through my island, people got three mm -hmm. outside of plant workers, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when you're talking cancer, it's too, there's so many variables, right? And people will say, well, there was increased cancer rates here. It's like, well, what chemicals were they exposed to? You firefighters, cancer is the number one killer of firefighters mm -hmm. because they're inhaling smoke and all the chemicals associated mm -hmm. with it. Um, these old plants used asbestos. This is the asbestos that they, mm -hmm. that they breathed in that's causing the cancer. So we don't know, you know, and if you look at a coal plant, they use asbestos and, you know, old yep. plants use asbestos. So it's not that... You know, the radiation is causing the cancer. There's lots of variables. We don't know. And, and, and this is timely because um, uh, for those that listen to the podcast often, uh, Polina and Joe are here in the room, and they're going to start laughing when I say this. But um, I've uh, recently read a book uh, called The Telomere Effect, 
And so it's a, uh, a professor who did a bunch of academic research all around uh, these telomeres. And telomeres are essentially on your DNA at the very ends. Think of them kind of like on your shoelaces, how you have that plastic cap. Yep. Uh, they can start at a certain length, and over the lifetime, they shorten. And as you they shorten, you look older, you age, right? Things get worse, and then eventually you die. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the things that goes into that other than, you know, how you eat, exercise, all things we all know, radiation. And so what they've talked about is uh, things like flying. Well, if you fly a whole lot, like your telomere shortened, right? If you stop flying so much after years of doing it, you can actually slow down the shortening of your telomeres. That has nothing to do with yes. power plants, et cetera. That's just natural human um, kind of uh, reactional relationship with what the things that they're doing in the environment, et cetera. And so um, of that, talk about the cancer, one of the things is if you continue to get exposed to that and your telomeres shorten, shorten, and shorten, there can be um, kind of the uh, continued growth of cells, et cetera. That's where you get the cancers from. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, this isn't, to me at least, coming from an educated perspective, it's not just a nuclear power plant related type thing. This is just human body science and biology, how um, you know, we interact with the things around us. Yeah, and an airline pilot gets more radiation being an airline pilot or stewardess. They get more radiation flying a year than a nuclear power plant operator gets operating a reactor. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's talk about the big topic, which uh, I know everyone's all excited about, which is the weapons, right? Yeah. So uh, when people hear nuclear weapons, it's like if you're a pro conflict, pro military, let's go fight everybody in the world. People get excited because it's that's the aggressive, um, you know, most powerful weapons type approach. If you are, uh, let's de-escalate every situation, and, and we don't want war, we don't want you know uh, issues, etc. Nobody should have nuclear weapons, right? Or kind of like that, the opposite ends of the spectrum. There, what is a nuclear weapon, right? And and how does that relate to nuclear power, etc.? So um, you can it requires the same fuels. Okay, so meaning the rods the, well, from uranium two thirty five. Meaning, meaning the uranium two thirty five okay. or the plutonium two thirty nine. Okay. All right. So, um, so I, that core fuel is yes. used for both power plants and for the nuclear weapon. But they are very different. Okay. So um, a nuclear reactor does never, never can never achieve the geometry is the is the term they use. Okay. To have a nuclear explosion. Okay, explain as best you can kind of why that is. Um, you can't get the atoms close enough because they're at an oxide, they're in those they're, they're in those rods, right? Whereas in a nuclear weapon, you actually, it starts, in, in, and I'm not an expert in nuclear weapons. That we'll makes leave two that, of us. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll leave that too, and this, this really cracks me up, to Mark B. Schneider. <laughs> no way. Uh, I'm not joking. B for bombs, E for energy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So... Um, yeah, literally one of the leading experts in nuclear weapons in the U.S. Is as Mark far, is, B. Schneider. Yeah. Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like, and uh, the the best way to describe this is talk about the, the atom bombs dropped on uh, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay. Because Hiroshima was a uranium bomb. Nagasaki was a plutonium bomb. Okay. All right. So the way that um, the uh, Hiroshima bomb was was that it was it's, it's a plug type. Meaning that it's a cylinder, like a like a glass mm-hmm. with thick walls. Okay. And they have a bullet of uranium, and they use an explosion from you know gunpowder, whatever, drives it in there. You have enough. You hit your critical geometry, mm-hmm. and it 
causes that uncontrolled reaction. We talked about the neutrons earlier, mm. where the one causes, you know, the atom to split, generates a couple of extra, those split everything, mm. you know, and then it just goes and through all just, the, yep, yeah. uncontrolled. And so you have an uncontrolled, you know, the mass amounts of heat generated, heat, light, energy. Um, so that's how the basis of that. And in a plutonium weapon, they're in a sphere, and there's lots of explosions around it, and you have to explode them all into the center to get the right geometry in there simultaneously and cause that explosion. Got it. And so the, I guess where some of the concern is, so to the uneducated, it's, hey, the word nuclear's in both, and like that's scary, right? Because I, I saw on TV there's this big explosion. I don't want that to happen down the street from my house or you know somewhere near me. Um, to the educated, it's actually the fuel source can be the same, but the geometry is the, the big differentiator between the two of them. And you have to look at the concentration of the fuel too, right? We talked okay. about the percentages. Mm -hmm. So in a nuclear reactor, a U.S. reactor, we typically use about 2 to 4% enriched uranium-235. So meaning 2 to 4% of your fuel is, mm -hmm. is uranium-235. In a weapon, it's greater than 90%. Wow. it's a pretty big <clears throat> difference. Yes. And same thing with plutonium, right? So our reactors do generate plutonium. We talked about those excess neutrons. Some get absorbed by that uranium-238 but it's about 1%, you still need that high 90% pure plutonium-239. The plutonium in our reactors is actually an 80-20 blend of uh, plutonium-239 and plutonium-240. That 240 actually makes the reaction mm -hmm. not viable for making a, an effective nuclear weapon. And, and is there concern, um, I've never heard this, but this is just me thinking how others might, might be concerned. Is there a concern that countries that are pursuing nuclear power could use some of the learnings there and experience there to then create nuclear weapons? Or are those two so separate things that there's it, not really a concern? So typically, um, it's there is a good overlap between them. Okay. Right, so now- From a, sci like a scientific From a scientific aspect. Yeah. So now to make a new a, a uranium bomb, mm -hmm. which is everyone's big concern with Iran right now. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Iran, I think is at 6% enrichment. So they've got another 84% to go before we should be concerned. When we say enrichment, what does that mean? That's the uh, the percentage of uranium-235 in the uranium. Okay. So they've, they've gotten, to, I think, to about 6%, and they have, I think, 320 kilograms of this stuff. Okay. There's 3.2 million kilograms of spent nuclear fuel in Virginia alone. Got <laughs> Much less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we're at 100% enrichment? What's that? As far as uh, uh, the U.S. enrichment? No, there are, th that fuel is only enriched. Well, the spent fuel is actually down to about one. Okay. Uh, because we've consumed all yep. the. Yeah, all, uh, okay. pre consumption. Pre consumption, it was 2 to 4%. Got it. Okay. Right. So. Um, so that fuel is uh, sorry. So the so Iran, Iran has a long ways to go before mm -hmm. we should be concerned. Um, in fact, actually, there's a uh, new scales a company that they're going to use a medium enriched. They're okay. going to get a special allowance to go to 19.75 percent enrichment, so their reactors can last longer. Mm -hmm. so they only need to refuel every 12 years. Okay. Um, and so the concern with a country doing nuclear energy related activities and then kind of pull back the curtain and oh now we have a nuclear bomb is that more science fiction concern so or? the 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 two countries that that, you, that are, are of concern are iran and north korea okay now iran um you know they have their centrifuges right that's what makes the 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 enrichment happen mm -hmm. and the uranium is the easiest method to make a weapon okay um and then uh, north korea however they designed a special reactor 
at least I believe this. I don't know everything. I don't know all the details of it. And this is kind of, we're, we're delving far outside what I'm normally, um, you know, attuned with. But I believe North Korea, I'll use that word. I believe North Korea has a reactor they designed specifically to generate plutonium. Now that plutonium, you if you keep a, in, has to remain in a reactor for less than six months. Mm-hmm. We, The fuel in a reactor stays in there for four and a half years before you pull it out normally. Right, so that's the normal method. So if you we got countries, I know that um, United Arab Emirates is about they're going to put on their Baraka Unit One. Uh, will be they'll be number thirty one on the uh, countries of nuclear power, mm-hmm. and they're going to bring theirs online. Uh, and it's a South Korean reactor design. Um, and I I don't think anyone should be concerned about them. You know, creating weapons yeah, or anything. Yeah. Whereas you know it, there's really uh, you know I like to break down the nuclear power program into into at least in the U S into three groups. Okay, you've got the commercial, which are your big scale reactors. Um, they do produce a lot of the nuclear waste, but it's benign from a weapon standpoint. Okay, you have the navy reactors, which run on very pure fuels, mm-hmm. um, but they're military, so they get exceptions for that. And then you have this third group, which is the Department of Energy. Those are your test reactors, and so those are the ones where I mean you're making medical isotopes with it, but you're putting fuel fuels in and out of those things. Mm-hmm. If you were to, you know you got to be concerned when nations are building test reactors. So if they're building commercial reactors, just let them build them all day long. They're not going to make, you can't make weapons materials from those. It's test reactors you got to be concerned about. And why is the test reactors? Is it because they aren't, they're more closely aligned with what's needed to make a weapon than with a commercial? Correct. Yeah. Got yeah. It. So, so in a commercial reactor, it's this big ordeal to disassemble the reactor and pull the fuel out. Whereas in a test reactor, they might be like, they might never operate the thing hot enough to really boil water mm-hmm. right but they're generating tons and tons of neutrons to um you know irradiate fuels or i mean they you know and they, they use that stuff for for good mm-hmm. um you know but you know anybody who's yeah got, all test reactors aren't bad yeah. but there's risk w- with yes them. but all test reactors could become made to do bad things got it okay uh, i want to go back to uh to the waste because i know that's um you know, when I think of like what is the biggest critique, it's around this waste component. I would agree um, with that. And uh, again, I think, you know, when I was reading online, I'm uneducated on the topic, right? And I'm trying to learn. And so, uh, again, there's a spectrum of like, there's plenty of people who just yell and scream like Chernobyl, Fukushima. They don't, they don't know, right? And so, like, you know, look, it's my favorite it, reply. <laughs> yeah, it, if you if you don't know, it's scary, right? Because yeah. the radiation and, and all this kind of stuff, radioactive material, all this kind of stuff. Um, but then there's the people who are actually super sophisticated, and I think that the very educated, sophisticated critic would say, okay, we go through this great process, we produce tons of reliable power and electricity, um, we do, we're getting more efficient at it, right? It absolutely could be a great solution. Their biggest concern is once that spent fuel rod goes into the pool, then goes into this cast, we either, one, can't guarantee that the cast is uh, sealed forever and kind of the life of the waste that we could talk about. But then also, two, is then we leave this cast on site. Like, we don't go put it anywhere, right? We touched a little bit on, like, where do we go put this stuff? And it sounds like, um, you know, there's been kind of initiatives to go put it in a mountain in the middle of the desert, et cetera. But in terms of the life of the waste, the number that I have always heard is 100,000 years this stuff stays radioactive for, right? And I'm sure that there's some decay in the radioactive um, kind of levels that it has. But 100,000 years, I think, just scares people because that's a really, really long time, right? 
how accurate is that? And are there things that we can do to just shorten the lifetime of the radioactive nature of this waste? And then two, like how do we ensure that that, uh, that helium sealed cast actually stays sealed? Um, well, the first off, the casters are uh, welded. They're welded. Yeah. So okay. they're, yeah, it's not like they're, they're, they're welded shut. Okay. And, and so would you say that there's not really a concern that once it's welded shut, nothing's going to happen to it? Or is there still some concern? I would say uh, the, the concern is extremely minimal. Okay. Um, I, I, and I say that because I just don't want to be an absolutist. Yep. Um, okay. I, I have, I personally have no concern, but you know, I want to be, you know, is trying to be honest here as well. Um, but is, uh, uh, you asked a really long question. Now yeah, I, yeah. It, okay, so, so let me kind of walk through each one of them. So no concern if the cast just sits there by itself, it's welded yep. shut, no problem. If there was an explosion in a plant, are the cast usually held in an area where it could be affected by an explosion, and would that cause an issue? That would not, no, because, I mean, they're typically, they're, they're, they're stored far enough away from the plant um, and they're actually require less security than the reactor, than the reactor does itself. Because they're, I mean, these cat, it's, they're not like, you know, a simple thing. They require special heavy cranes to, to pick them up to and move them. Up. So it's not like you can go throw one of these things in the bed of your pickup truck. Yeah, it's like an oil barrel. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Which, which is, that's what the image is, is always these yellow It's the oil. Simpsons. Yeah. Right? The, the, the Simpsons, uh, the podcast that I listened to from the Department of Energy, they actually started off talking about, there was this Simpsons episode all about, you know, radioactive material at a nuclear power plant and, uh, you know, all this stuff goes wrong, et cetera. And later on, the Simpsons producer came out and apologized and said, look, you know, we we're basically making jokes. We didn't understand what we were making a joke about. And, you know, we apologize. Um, okay. So, that, so that's first. The second is in terms of um, the human error that can get introduced in uh, with this waste. So whether it's taking the spent uh, fuel rod and putting it into the immersive pool or then getting it into the cast, like where are the failure points or potential failure points there? And how big of a risk is that? Um, well, being is that... Uh there are failure points, um, but the risk at this point is extremely minimal. Um, You know, right now, you know, basically a third of all the reactors in the U S underwent an outage this, this fall. Okay. An outage meaning outage, meaning they shut the reactor down. They pulled all the fuel out. They left a third of it in the spent fuel pool. Then they stuck a third new, and then they put two thirds of it back together all in there. Okay. They move in, you know, these fuel assemblies so there's there's fail safes there's lots of uh experience in there probably the worst location with regards to this is there's a i can't remember the name of the plant and it's gonna it's, it's down down near san diego where the plant is shut down and they are in that final process of taking those spent those rods that have been in there for a decade mm-hmm. so it's been shut down for that long and they're putting them in their final casks to then um to to put them store them on site so that's that's probably your biggest risk and there's it's all over the place and you know you have uh the nrc is is huge amounts of regulation huge amounts of oversight fuel movement is one of the most um you have special extra qualifications and i know this is not people people want to hear is because you're putting the human element in there Mm. um but there's the amount of times this is done if there was a problem, you know, because the nuclear industry drives levels down, their problems down so low that you don't bubble up the same kind of problems, mm-hmm. right? We're talking low order magnitude issues. Guy hung a, a, a 
a tag on the wrong component. The plant shuts down for 24 hours to do a safety stand down to realign everyone. Meanwhile, you use the comparison to the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, down in North Carolina, they have a guy operate the wrong valve, blows up three people, and you know, one bats an eye, right? So there's a big difference in the way the 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 we regulate and we operate the nuclear industry. I like to say that um, after through my island, the commercial industry decided to or made the decision to put the NRC out of business which the NRC is a nuclear regulatory, so they're the government oversight. And they created a, an organization called the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations. Okay. So the utilities fund this, so this is self-regulation. Mm-hmm. You don't hear about this often, but the utility funds this organization that goes around and grades each, each power plant. And they give you know, guidance on how to operate this way. And they come in with giant teams. The NRC, you've got a couple of people that are there at the site at all times. Inpo brings in a team of 20 people and they're like, they're watching how you take your rounds. They're watching how you're, you know, very thorough, very thorough. Yes. And it's, and it's not once or twice a year, it's five, six, seven, eight times a year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the industry has radically overregulated itself mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And people, I don't think ever hear that. They only hear the, the horror stories. And, the, and, you know, one of the comments that someone made um, about Three Mile Island and this is probably the, the best uh, way to understand how the industry has improved is that Three Mile Island wasn't the worst. It was the one that melted. Mm-hmm. There were other plants that were probably operating because, you know, the, the 70s and 80s were, we, I lovingly refer to as the wild, wild west of nuclear because mm-hmm. we were operating, you know, we as an industry were just operating yeah. like A lot of industries were. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so... Uh, around this waste component, right? So the hundred thousand years you mentioned earlier, three hundred years. Wh- where's how do we get that down? So the the hundred thousand years is actually based on the half life of plutonium two thirty nine. Okay, so just literally take plutonium two thirty nine and half life it out, and you get yeah, yeah, you get about yeah, it's about one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty thousand years or so. But yeah, that's that's the typical number. The three hundred years is based off of uh, your fission products, right? So. So or your, your, your heavy elements, your, they're called actinids. I, I hate these terms because they're so overly technical. Um, but your heavy elements have really long half-lives. Uraniums is in the billions of years. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, like, longer than the planet will be around kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and then, you know, plutonium's down at 24,000 years. And then when you're talking, you know, your cesium and rubidium and, you know, we're basically, I could just name off the chart of nuclei or chart of uh periodic table and we could go through all that i stuff. never memorized it in school. yeah You're neither good. did i um <laughs> and, but and so if uranium is a billion years and plutonium's 120 130,000 years how do we get it down to hundreds of years so uh one of the things is is that uh if we took our spent fuel and we put it into a fast reactor we could consume the plutonium that exists in it we could take all that uranium we could tr- transmute it into plutonium and then consume all that okay. So this, this is like the most fascinating thing to me. Uh, I told you before we got started that uh, Jason Williams, who's been on the podcast before, uh, one of my partners, uh, has a business, PRTI, takes car tires that are waste, gets paid to take them, puts them in these thermal uh, demanu- uh, demanufactured reactors, basically breaks the car tire down at high heats, right? Creates um, uh, oil, steel, carbon, syngas, creates power, sells the oil and the steel. He's using waste product to create power. What you're talking about here with this quote-unquote fast reactor, my understanding is you're going to run uranium-235 in a fuel rod through the traditional process. There's a waste output 
that waste output is still uranium, right? Mm -hmm. It's just spent fuel rods, et cetera. You can take that waste uranium and put it to a fast reactor, turn the waste uranium into plutonium, and then use that to create power. Correct. Yep, you got it. Man, I'm gonna. I told you I'm gonna be a nuclear engineer by the end of this. So, <laughs> so, so what? Why can we not do that now? So, so right now we can't do that because there's two regulations that were put in place in the 1970s under the Carter administration. Okay. One is is that we can't use fast reactors in the United States, and the other, at least, but at the commercial industry level, and the others we can't process our spent fuel. Okay, so let's take those one at a time. Our fast reactors, obviously, they must have been around when Carter was president, right? So somebody created them before that. So Jimmy Carter was supposed to be the first engineer on the first nuclear-powered USS Seawolf, which was the only fast reactor that the was ever put on a submarine. So Jimmy Carter actually— God, the world is so small. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so when those got created, why did that administration say we can't use the, them? The concern is you, it's that plutonium word. Okay. Right. So it was all about weapons proliferation. Got it. So basically, the idea that a fast reactor takes the used uranium and turns it into plutonium immediately. No, we don't want to do that because that yeah. could lead to weapons uh, creation. But that's also not understanding about that eighty twenty blend that I was talking about. So if you use it in a fast reactor, such as the BN eight hundred that the Russians are using, mm-hmm. the Russians, so other people are using fast reactors. Th- there are a couple. It's not many. Okay. But um, the Russians have their BN eight hundred, which so. I'm going to use a couple of terms here. So the seed, which is the initial fuel uh, for their, is it's a plutonium reactor, was from weapons. Okay, seed meaning this is the this is the uranium beginning. 235 before it is used the this first is, time, or this, this is going into the fast reactor. This is going into the fast reactor. Okay. It's going in as plutonium, and it's coming from. Uh, they they used uranium created plutonium before it was in a weapon. Now they're yep. taking the weapons grade plutonium and they're putting it into the fast reactor. Yep. Okay. And so then it I has. I see why people are a little nervous yep. about that. And then and then they have what's called the blanket. Okay. So the blanket goes around the seed. And then the seed, as it's operating and making power, it turns the uranium around it into plutonium. Interesting. And so that goes to that process that you explained very well. Six months after that reactor went online, Mm -hmm. there was no weapons-grade material in it remaining. Why? Because there's too much plutonium-240 in it after six months. Got it. So is it absorbing it? So not all the uh, the plutonium two thirty nine just or the uranium two thirty eight absorbing a or yeah because we go back there all the plutonium two thirty nine if it absorbs a neutron it doesn't necessarily always undergo a fission some of it will absorb that neutron and then it will remain as plutonium two forty wow it, it's crazy to me how do they expect that to happen yeah. Uh, Yes. Okay, I mean, so like theoretically this was supposed to happen and then they look back months later and like hey, well, what we thought was going to happen happened. It, it, so when they first figured it out, no, they didn't expect that to happen. Okay, so that, it was a surprise. Yeah, it was a surprise the first when, when they first figured this out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we got to remember we're talking 30s that they were figuring this stuff out. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay so this isn't like even the 80s or 90s. No, we're, yeah. we're talking literally. Yeah, we're talking yeah, the inception of, of nuclear is, is when they, when they wow. figured that out. So... Okay, so there's a couple of countries that use these fast reactors. We here aren't. Uh, I'm assuming that there's efforts underway to get the approval to use fast reactors in the United States, so, or is that idea dead? No, it's not. So there is, um, there's a couple of companies out there. Uh, well, first off, the United States is going to build a versatile test reactor, which is to test fast fuel. 
Okay. So it's going to be designed to test fuels for fast reactors. So there is uh, a couple of companies. Um, one of them is probably probably the biggest one that, that people know about is called TerraPower. Okay. And TerraPower has its funding source from none other than Bill Gates. I was going to say, I think I just saw this in the uh, Netflix documentary he was talking yep. about. Okay. So, um, How does TerraPower work? So te they have two different designs. One is uh, a, a sodium uh, cooled reactor, which it, it, it all comes, the coolants are what matter with this. The other is a molten salt reactor. Um, but they are going to operate in the fast spectrum. And when I say fast, it, it all comes to the energy of the neutron. Okay. So uranium-235 requires a thermal neutron, which means it's at a lower energy. Plutonium-239 requires a fast neutron. And then everyone loves talking about thorium. And if I don't mention thorium, you're going to have 80 million people asking about Hold on, before we it. talk about thorium, when you describe fast as, uh, as basically science, right, and, yeah. and the different um, makeups, uh, it reminds me of this joke that if the government could, they would outlaw science. Yeah. Right? Just because you have people who usually aren't scientists who are making laws about science. And so if there's not an understanding, it's kind of hard to regulate and outlaw, et cetera, when uh, you don't understand the science. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, but All yeah. right, so thorium. So I, thorium. Every, I don't know what thorium is. I didn't know if it was a sci-fi character or <laughs> it was a, something on the periodic table, but everyone was tweeting this at me. Yeah, well, thorium because Andrew Yang has made thorium popular okay all right so let's so TerraPower has two separate designs designs one is that sodium based one you just described the other is thorium it, well so base <laughs> this is why nuclear gets so confusing okay because there's coolant there's fuel there's fuel configuration there's um <clears throat> you know how it's just there's so many elements that go into it okay so TerraPower is, you know, they have a design. One is called their traveling wave reactor that is specifically uses uh, a seed of uranium-235 and then depleted uranium, which you were in the Army, you know, tanks use depleted uranium for armor and for rounds, right? That's that leftover stuff from the enrichment. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that's the, so we could use that, right? We already have it mined. Yep. Um, about 10,000 years worth between depleted uranium and um, our fuel, if okay. we converted 100% to nuclear, by the way, in the U.S., 10,000 years of energy. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> government so, outlawing science. Yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So, so, and I'm not, I don't have the details. And, and when I talk to these companies, I don't ask for the specifics on their designs mm -hmm. because I don't want to, to, to get into proprietary and, and I'm just kind of evaluating them from, from a standpoint, a different standpoint. I know that if you're using sodium, you're going to go in the fast spectrum. Okay. If you're using a molten salt, you can vary your spectrum, what you're doing, whether you're using uh, uranium-235, plutonium, or thorium bred into uranium-233, and that's where it gets really confusing because uranium's involved in all of it. Okay. So thorium exists naturally. It's about three times as abundant as, as uh, uranium. Okay. So, um, so it's basically like a uranium. It's just thorium. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you want to go find thorium, just go out to Central Park, pick up some dirt, you'll find thorium in there. Okay. Um, Sounds like we just solved power problems. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there's about three quarters of a million years of thorium on planet Earth. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We, we, so why is uh, TerraPower and Andrew Yang, w w why are they s talking about thorium or using thorium? It, um, so thorium doesn't have the negative connotation that plutonium and uranium have. Oh, because thorium right. hasn't been used to make weapons. Allegedly. It, well... There was one test bomb created that partially used uranium-233 in it. So could you make a not useful, a not so useful weapon out of it? 
Yeah, it's extremely difficult. So it's the hardest to make weapons weapons out of is uranium-233. So thorium is thorium-232. If you go to your periodic table, mm -hmm. it is two below uranium. Is that like TH? Is that the yeah, sign? Yeah, TH, yep. Okay. Yeah, TH. And so it's 230. Shout, shout out seventh grade science. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it absorbs a neutron like the uranium does. And okay. it then instead of becoming plutonium like the uranium does, it comes uranium-233. Uranium-233, it operate has a larger range of, of energies that the um uh that the neutrons can be at um but there's a lot of we don't have a whole lot of experience with it okay so um and we yang wants to use this because he just thinks that he's like anti-weapons i'm it's safer i i i don't i'm gonna mind read a little bit here on okay. andrew yang i yeah. think he's using he brought up thorium because it sounds smart Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, it yep. is smart. Yep. Um, it's talking about advanced things. Mm -hmm. It doesn't it's have a, a negative connotation. Yep. Right. And so it just, it, and it pushes nuclear. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and to the point where, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who has shut them all down literally in the last debate was, um, we need to keep some nuclear reactors around. Mm -hmm. So if you've taken a hard shut all nuclear reactors down person and soften them, Okay, I'll give Andrew Yang a lot of credit for that. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I you know I've been walking around the city, and every person I have spoken to, there I was concerned, you know, uh, you know, that they would be anti-nuclear. I don't the the sentiment of anti-nuclear I think is fading pretty yeah, quick. Yeah, and, and um, there's people who I see on Twitter talking about um, nuclear power, power generation, all this stuff, and and thorium has never been the conversation until I tweeted that we were going to do this interview, and then I felt like I had the thorium army come at me. Yeah, um, you're welcome but, to my world. <laughs> but um, what, what's interesting to me, I think, is uh, similar to myself, people are learning more about nuclear, right? And they're realizing that it isn't the Chernobyl, you know, everyone's going to die, and, and everyone's walking around with those protective suits on. It's Again, it's a scientific process. There's safety um, that is a concern, but there's also things that are there to mitigate it, et cetera. And so if we can get reliable, persistent, clean energy, that's probably a pretty good thing, so, right? So um, in talking about that reliable, clean, safe, uh, so there was a reactor that we built in 1965 called Experimental Breeder Reactor 2. It was built out in Idaho. And they put it through a Fukushima test on crack. Like it's the, it was way worse than what Fukushima had. Mm -hmm. It was a fast reactor, sodium cooled, right? Much like the BN800 I talked about earlier. And much like TerraPower's design. They shut off all the cooling, operating 100% power. Fukushima was shut down when they lost their, when the mm -hmm. tsunami hit, right? So the reactor had already been shut down because of the earthquake. Tsunami mm -hmm. washed out their safety systems. They intentionally, in 1986, with this reactor operating at 100% power, turned off her cooling systems. What happened? It shut down after 300 seconds and remained there until they started it back up. Pretty impressive. That is impressive. Yeah. And then we've had two, and these are test reactors. We've had two sodium test reactors that underwent Chernobyl level events, and they literally pulled out the melted fuel and put in new fuel and operated them for decades later. It's crazy. So, I mean, and that's, you know, we're talking back in the days of manual crank control rods, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you look at it now, we have automatic protection systems that take the human element out of there with redundancies and yeah. you'd be amazed at the amount of... So, so let, let's go back for a second to, um, there's two reasons why the fast reactors aren't used, right? You said the first was, which can't use fast reactors. It yep. sounds like um, Terra Power, maybe some others are trying to get around that. How are they, like... If Bill Gates is investing, he's obviously investing in something, but if we can't use fast reactors, what exactly is he investing in? Are they doing it outside the United States? or? Uh, I know that 
TerraPower at one point was working with China. Um, they were going to build some stuff out there, and I, I, I spoke with Chris Lebeck, the uh, the CEO, about it. And uh, they were the 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 trade war actually shut their down their operation out in China. Um, but with this, uh, I think that we're about to see the regulation change. Now, that regulation, as far as using fast reactors and reprocessing spent fuel, it switches about every eight years. So about every eight years, for some reason, it's in place, and then it's back. And I mean, Got it, it. Yeah, it, or one will go and, you know, so it's kind of just bounces back and forth. Based and then on, what about the regulation that prevents us from using waste? Um, that, that one bounces with it, too, as well. Okay, um, so, so really, the fast reactor is, there's two regulations. We can't use waste. We can't use the fast reactor. When it, they go to we can or we can't, is that political party divided? It, it's somewhat, yes. Okay. Um, now, one of the things is that if we just go with the fast reactor, then we could use, say, a, um, a seed of uranium-235, and then we could generate plutonium after that. Got it. Um, and then you've got so it doesn't a, have to be waste, but, it, but yeah, ideally it would be Ideally waste. it would be, yes, yeah, so that we could reduce our waste stockpile, or at least not increase it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the fission products only last about 300 years. It's about 1% to 2% of those that do last that long. I mean, you pull... You pull um, Let's say we used a fast reactor, we used a thorium reactor, we used a pure uranium-235 reactor, and you consumed all the fuel in it, mm-hmm. right? You pull out that waste, 60% of it's not radioactive, mm-hmm. right? So our, already our, our waste stockpile is reduced by over half. Mm-hmm. And then one to two years later, you've lost, say, 5%, and then it goes up over, over time. Um, but a lot of those constituents are actually useful with industrial and medical purposes. So, you know, you, you've obviously heard of radiation treatments for cancer, right? That's created from the nuclear industry, mm-hmm. and we're actually causing radiation sickness in specific parts of the body where the cancer cells are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can, you know, we need that for radiation purposes. Things like barium treatment, where they put a radioactive, a low, a low radiation uh, chemical in you, so that they can track how your body is processing, how your kidneys are working. Um, or there's things like uh, it's called um, radiography. So like you know we're in this great building right here. We're what 54th floor I think, and uh, you got all these you know these these red pipes going all throughout this building. Well, those welds you want to make sure that they're they're going to hold, mm-hmm. especially if you know you have a fire up here on the 54th floor, right? And you're really concerned about the ones on the bottom when you have 54, you know, floors of of, uh, of water on top, but that's a lot of pressure on the bottom there. So we can take, it's basically like a super X-ray to make sure there's no flaws in the welds. So there's a lot of purposes. Uh, there's a, 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 it's right in the middle of the periodic table called technectium. It makes a great pipe coating, but we can't generate it. Na- it doesn't exist naturally. We have to generate it in nuclear power. So there's all sorts of things that if we could reprocess the waste, um, there would be benefits to it. Yeah, there would be benefits. Um, one of the things I like talking about is that if I went to a U.S. reactor anywhere in the U.S. right now and I could magically change it from being a thermal reactor to being a fast reactor, that fuel, instead of lasting four and a half years, would last 500. Because why? Because we use so little of it. Got it. The fast reactor is more efficient with the use of the fuel. Yeah, because we use 100% of the uranium. And that would put less pressure on the uranium mining business, right? Because now we don't have to dig up as much of it, and at least we can extend the use of what what we can dig up. Yeah, we have have about a quarter million years of uranium if we use fast reactors, 1,000 if we use thermal. Can we create these uh, nuclear 
power generation or power plants, just like we have them on um, submarines and aircrafts. One of the questions I saw online was, can we use it to, let's say, power this building or an apartment complex or uh, a car, like kind of smaller scale type um, activities, or are we just not there on the science side? Well, so the U.S. Department of Energy is testing what they call micro-reactors. Okay, what's that? So it's a reactor on a, an extremely small scale. So we're um, so uh, to give you an idea, the, the actual size of a submarine reactor, the actual physical reactor itself, is only the size of a 55-gallon trash can. Really? Yeah. Wow. Now, that's not including the turbine all that stuff, but that's just yeah, yeah. The, the power, the actual where the heat is generated is only about the size of a 55-gallon trash can. Wow. There are micro reactors that are being designed that are literally the size of a Charmin extra jumbo roll of toilet paper. Wow. So now it's what do they want to do with those? uh, Put them on space probes. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Space Force needs some power. In terms of, and and we're going to get to space, but uh, so this is probably the idea that if you send a probe out, you, if it needs fuel, that fuel will eventually run out. You have to put a human there to somehow regulate the fuel usage in some cases, and either the human will die or you'll run out of fuel and you can't get it back. So if you have nuclear, you can get much more life and power out of the nuclear. Yeah, the nuclear, if you use the, you know, a lot of these probes that we've sent out, right? They don't. They're they're operating on very very low power levels. Yep. You know, they're going way deep. You know, very deep. And you can send these things out. And if you're talking a small reactor like that, it could last for, you know, two, three, four hundred years that way. Mm. Um, the other thing, going back to the waste, um, is that there's something called nuclear batteries. Okay. So as those those uh, those fission products decay, they release radiation. Mm-hmm. You can actually cause that radiation to interact much in the similar way that a, a, um, uh, a solar panel works, okay. you can have it generate electricity. So if you took radioactive waste that lasts for 300 years, you could probably have a battery that now they're going to overall, de- you know, they're going to degrade over time, much like solar panels will. But, um, you know, you could have a, say, a battery that lasts two, 300, you know, two, 250 years that you, you know, design and build. What's the difference? Um, I saw a bunch of people talking about fusion versus fission, nuclear fusion, F-U-S-I-O-N, yes. I think it was. What, what is that? So um, fission, we're talking about the splitting of atoms. Fusion is the combining of atoms. So okay. you're, this is going to that, that tritium thing. Man, I really got to go back to the textbooks. Okay. Yeah. So the nuclear fusion, if you're not splitting the atom, are, uh, what exactly are you doing so combining them? You're you're taking, um, so typically the, the way that, like in the sun, it's typically a helium three and a deuterium atom. I think that that fuses okay. um, to create the energy. That's how most of the sun is actually making its power through fusion. But here on planet Earth, we would use deuterium and tritium. That's just hydrogen two and hydrogen three. It's just fancy, fancy forms of hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you would basically, if you used like, and I'm not smart on fusion, so there's... Don't worry, my, the Twitter trolls are. Yeah, yeah they're way smarter than me. <laughs> they've got thorium and they've got uh, yeah, fusion, fusion down. <laughs> yeah, so um, so you can, you know, using whatever process and, you know, it, it's kind of the, you know, it's kind of the unicorn of the nuclear world um, is fusion, which, I mean... What, what would be the benefit of using fusion rather than fission? Um, well, when you shut a fusion reaction down, you don't have that decay heat. That that heat. So then you heat. wouldn't have to put the spent fuel rod into. The yeah, there would be no rod. Got it. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. But the only problem with that is, is that fusion requires fission because you have to generate large quantities of tritium for it. Yep. Um, which 
going back to Fukushima, they were worried about the air yeah. and the venting. Yeah, so and you generate that in nuclear reactors. Has anybody done nuclear fusion at any level of scale, even in a test-type environment? Well, the first tests were out in the Marshall Islands called, you know, a place called Bikini Atoll, where we, you know, called the H-bomb. So, Got it. Yes, we, we have done fusion. It's, it's it, First tests were done with nuclear weapons. We have gotten nuclear fusion to work. Um, it just hasn't been... We haven't done it on a scale that's able to generate enough power to keep itself uh, sustaining without, you know, basically producing more power than it needs. Okay, so the initial attempts at nuclear fusion were all weapons related. Same thing with same thing with nuclear uh, power, power too. Yep. So, so basically, when we did that, the H bomb and and all of that, obviously, again, scary for some people, yep. right? But the the challenge there, it sounds like, is we create too much power. Well, I mean, you... Or you, just un, unregulated, unregulated amount of power. Well, it, it's problem is not necessarily it's unregulatable. It, the problem is, is that it's making the reaction sustain, right? So, right, it's with the the fission, you've got that, you, you, you split the atom, it creates neutrons. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, you have to, you fuse the atom, it creates energy, which is going to drive outward, mm-hmm. but you got to keep all that stuff together so that you can keep your atoms close enough. And, and, and I'm way not an expert yeah, in this. Yeah, and I'm sure there's some troll right now who's going out there going, he's got it all wrong, and he's probably right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is my understanding. I, I, People I, will tweet at us. And yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 they're going to tweet. Fusion! I, I actually I actually like when they tweet back because uh, then I actually do learn. Now, they don't always say it in the nicest way, but, yeah. but I learn, <laughs> so, I, so I appreciate it. Um, all right, so last thing I want to talk about is I usually ask people about aliens on, on the podcast. Uh, I don't want to talk about aliens because um, as I was thinking through this, one of the things that I haven't spent a lot of time talking on the podcast uh, but fascinates me is this idea of uh, manufacturing in space, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about can we send a bunch of stuff up to space and is it easier, faster, cheaper, whatever, to do manufacturing in space? Um that got me thinking as I was preparing for this, why if, you know, has anyone looked at it? And if not, why not doing some of the nuclear power generation in space, whether it's testing, whether it's some sort of steady state, et cetera, have people thought about that? Have, has, is the environment, is the scientific, you know, components different? What's going on with kind of the, the intersection of space and nuclear power? Um, other than, you know, the fact that we, we're testing it to go deploy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Testing it, it meaning like the space probes, the, yeah, spa- yeah, yeah, power plants for the space probes and, and deep, you know, and they're colony size. So like if you're to put a colony on the moon or on Mars, you need energy and their nuclear is going to be the method for that. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's, that's part of the testing for all that stuff is, is, is to, um, and this is, you know, we're rudimentary testing level for yep. this stuff. But, but there, it would be testing of nuclear power to power colonization on mars or the moon yeah yeah because yeah. okay. then you know it's once again it's that small compact mm-hmm. abundant energy right you know if Long i can make it yeah if i can make a reactor that you know that you know fits in a uh a toilet paper roll that can power me for a while right compare that to a solar panel where i got to get how many of those things you know it's a weight mm-hmm. cost weight savings thing mm-hmm. 
Um, so there's a lot of that aspect. It's clean. The, it is, the aliens will appreciate yeah. it being clean energy. So if you want to talk nuclear and aliens, there is belief that the Tunguski explosion in the early 1900s in Russia was caused by an alien nuclear weapon. So there's your nuclear okay. weapons and aliens. Wait, what, what is this? The Tunguski explosion in Russia. What is that? Uh, there was a big giant explosion, I think, in like the early 1900s. Okay. Um, and it was, I've they, never heard of that. Yeah, it looks like a giant. It, went, it was right in the middle of Siberia. And so there's beliefs that, you know, one of the, you know, the ancient aliens theories or whatever is that it was a, uh, it was an actually an, an alien that, that, that decided to, to test a nuclear weapon in, in Russia's backyard. I, uh, I actually had a, uh, a researcher, his name is Bruce Fenton, come on, he's a ancient alien uh, researcher, and uh, I, I could see the threads of like 60, 70% of it, and then there were some that just, and I told him, I said, Ah, you lost me on that one. <laughs> yeah, but the, the natural belief is it was an asteroid. Got in the so, early 1900s. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, so. yeah, it just, to me, I guess there's pros and cons, right? If I had to conceptually think about, uh, it makes a lot of sense, hey, let's go test nuclear power for the colon, uh, potential colonies on, mm-hmm. on these other planets um, or on the moon. But if it's lighter, could it be cheaper? You know, is there different... Um, whether it's minerals or components or whatever in space that, that you could actually do nuclear uh, in space. I guess the hard part would be how do you get it back, right? In, in terms of if you're doing power generation, I don't know if you really or have do a way you to, want it back. Yeah, is there a way to actually bring it back? I mean, it could just be that you run a, uh, you know, because I mean the space shuttles, you know, rest in peace. Um, you know, they they actually were powered by hydrogen and oxygen. Interesting. Yeah. So their fuel, their fuel cells, you know, they use hydrogen and oxygen um, to as their their fuel. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about it, right, we could use hydrogen oxygen generation at a at a nuclear power plant mm-hmm. as our method to you know shuttle things back and forth between, say, a nuclear powered space station, mm-hmm. and then that way, you know, instead of having, you know, we, we're using nuclear power, but we're using it to create chemical energy. Yep. It goes into the carbon capture and. So, if we're talking about going up. Let's talk about going down. Why don't we just create nuclear power plants in the earth or mm-hmm. like under the sea in terms of, so think about uh, we're willing to obviously submerge them with submarines, et cetera, right? So, so we've figured out in some form or fashion how to do it on a smaller scale. Would there be either um, mitigation of the waste argument or some other advantage to building a nuclear power plant down inside the crust of the earth? Um, or in, inside of a mountain or something, uh, or under the sea? Um, I mean, there's there's really, you know, you could put them basically anywhere. You just need some kind of uh, whatever your cooling source is. Uh, you some know, way to get the power. Yes, yeah. One. the big thing is, is that uh, uh, when you're talking any kind of a, a steam engine like that, you waste two-thirds of your heat. Um, so you got to do something with that heat. So that's the big thing, right? And, you know, we use, you know, whether it's the ocean, lakes, um, rivers, uh, or, you know, in the weird case, and I'll bring it up again, is, you know, Palo Verde out in Arizona literally uses Phoenix's um, wastewater. They treat the, the treated sewage goes out to Palo Verde, and that's what they use to cool their, their plants out there. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. What, um, last question for you. What are you most excited about over the next, let's call, 20 years in nuclear power? Um, so I'm going to give you that in, in – in bytes. Okay. So I'm excited for 2021 when Vogel Unit 3 comes online. That's the first nuclear reactor that's going to, new construction nuclear reactor to be built. That's super exciting. 2022 new scale breaks ground in Idaho um, to build their 12 unit facility uh, called UAMPS. Same designs as 
older ones or are these this is these are beam? small modular reactors they are going right. to be factory built so that's that's new and exciting i think uh they're looking i think canada's looking to have a gen 4 uh molten salt reactor design built by 2027 um so there's a lot of really really cool stuff coming down uh the line with all this so i'm, I'm super excited and, and that's not even any a decade bi any bitcoin mining um, what's, you know, what's going I, on with the Bitcoin I, stuff? I, you know, it's funny. I, I was going to wait till the very end to ask. Yeah, because I know nothing about Bitcoin mining. Really? I know nothing. I, you know, I, I, I literally, I, I got into Bitcoin because of Eric Finn. I met, I met him at an event and uh, he said he's creating this app. So as soon as he had it, I got it and I started buying Bitcoin. Um, and I've had, I've heard about, there's literally a nuclear power plant that they, that a couple of workers got in trouble for Bitcoin mining. In Russia, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Russia, Ukraine, I remember. But I literally, I don't even know what Bitcoin mining is. So, uh, I'll give you the two seconds. Um, think of, uh, you need computational power okay. to, uh, essentially solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And when you solve that problem, you've mined a block. When you get that, there's a mining reward, right? Very overgeneralization of how it works. Okay. But uh, in order to do this computational heavy work, you have essentially hardware that has software on it mm -hmm. and you need power to run it. The largest input cost to mining is the power cost. So think of it kind of like a traditional data center, but rather than me putting CPUs into a data center, I plug power in, I have space, I buy CPUs, and then I rent my CPU computing power out to a customer. Okay. Now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get power, I'm gonna plug it into a space, I'm gonna put either GPUs or ASICs, so different types of computers, and I'm gonna not rent that computing power out to a customer, I'm basically gonna use it to uh, run the software for these networks. Those networks will then pay me in a very predictable, transparent way. So data center for cryptocurrency is basically the okay. easy description. Because of that, if you need low cost power, what do people do? They go look for renewable. And so what you see around the world is you see a lot of hydro, you see uh, a little bit of solar, not so much. Uh, you see a little bit of wind, not so much, um, but you see excess hydro. Um, now you're starting to see people go down to like Texas, uh, flare gas. Mm -hmm. um, the business I told you that my partner runs, a PRTI, they take that uh, car, tire, uh, and that output of power. They actually use to mine uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. So they're using a uh, self-contained power generation, right, that's vertically integrated to a cryptocurrency mined, et cetera. Naturally, as you think through that, well, what has persistent power, is cheap, is clean, et cetera, nuclear. Uh, my whole fascination with this was I had not heard of until the guys in Russia, um, I think it was, uh, anyone using nuclear power to mine Bitcoin. And so I was like, well, let me go learn about nuclear first before I even start with the uh, with the Bitcoin mining. But I, I guess it's not something that's been talked about in the in the power community really. Well, and then what's fascinating is is that this is why you'd put them up north mm -hmm. because yep, it's self cooling. Yeah. Because yeah, well, and your nuclear is more efficient the colder the water. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so, the machines are actually they, they stay cool. One of the the other large input costs is basically how do you cool the machines? Yeah, so, if so you just stick them in Texas. It's much more difficult than if yeah, you do it so, in Iceland. Yeah, yeah, Iceland or you know, say up in the Yukon or whatever, but mm -hmm. or up in Alaska, right? You could use your nuclear power plant for your source of energy, and then you've got natural cooling from, huh? So the neat. nuclear or just power in general, right? So. Um, if a company was to create self-generate power, whether it's through car tires or anything else, they can usually sell it into the grid depending on, you know, with the location, et cetera. 
let's call it three to five cents, right? Is kind yeah. of the, the general uh, take there. Um, then it's getting sold to consumers at eight, nine, 10, 12 cents, whatever it is. You could take that same power in the same environment uh, and generate 30 or 40 cents uh, in terms of mining cryptocurrency. So it's a pretty material you know, step up in, in the uh, revenue you can generate from that power creation. I don't know the economics of nuclear power, but my guess is that uh, if you were yeah. able to divert some you know, percentage of the power generation or excess power generation, right, that isn't able to be stored and you were able to mine Bitcoin or, or some other cryptocurrency with it, you could actually make it incredibly uh, profitable um, because that power is persistent, it's clean, it's cheap, et cetera. Yeah, so a, a 900 megawatt plant typically makes about a million dollars a day. Oh, you're, that's- And, and that's profit. That's pennies compared to what they would make money. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> wow. You know, it, it's, it's it, it, if we talk to whoever owns that 900 megawatt facility, they might shut down and, and uh, or stop selling it into the uh, into the grid. Yeah. Um, wow. That's you know, it, it's funny because uh, I found this weird partnership. You know, you guys like you are reaching out to me and I, a lot of the crypto guys are reaching out to me uh, talking about. And now that you've given me the, you know, the 411 on 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 Bitcoin or crypto mining, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I knew there's a large power thing. The other organization, the other group of people that are um, uh, movers and shakers that are reaching out to me is the cannabis industry. Oh, right now. Now what's funny is, is that if you work a nuclear, if you pop on a drug test to include marijuana, you can't work a nuclear for five <laughs> more years. So it's this really weird thing I'm in right now where it's like, you know, these, these, you know, these guys from the cannabis industry are reaching out to me and I'm like, this is like this weird, conglomeration well and, and my, my cousin is actually kind of a mover and shaker and i should probably get him in touch with you because you probably think, find him fascinating talking about all of his stuff with cannabis but um you know they're in that same type of thing where yep. they look and they go renewables just aren't working because they want lights on 24 7 365 to in their grow beds yep. and they're working on if when you talk go back to bill gates and he's you know whether you believe global warming or not mm -hmm. you know the 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 two biggest things you need to work on is soil and energy, right? Well, nuclear solves the energy aspect, and then the cannabis industry literally is taking it upon themselves to work on things like hydroponics and aquaponics to basically get you know, crops into, say, a vertical farm mm -hmm. that you can run lights on 24-7, 365. You got to have the temperatures just right, and you can do that with large amounts of energy and nuclear, and it's, it's just fascinating. It, it to me, is um, you get what tend to be technologists now are going to these industries and what they start to do is they start to look at vertical integration right and so they're realizing that just like in software where uh, i used to um, have one layer of a technology stack if i can vertically integrate there's a lot of cost savings efficiencies etc um, what i've seen on multiple occasions across industries is uh, in anything that requires some level of power generation you're starting to see this interest in vertical integration now the difference is software is one thing the ability to understand how to grow weed you know yeah. build, build a facility and also do power generation those are pretty different skill sets um and so you've got to build teams or partnerships whatever um the nice thing in crypto is if you're into computers and, and mining etc you actually probably have a pretty good understanding of uh power generation um and uh really from an economic standpoint. How do I find the cheapest power? Where is it? How do I hook it up to these computers? Um, and so I've heard a lot of people doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, 
never heard of nuclear until the one group um, got in trouble, obviously. Yeah. Um, but but it just seems like it would be a natural extension of uh, of what they're already doing. But uh, but I just hadn't heard anything. Yeah, you know, it's 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 fascinating because um, I'm sure you're a follower of Scott Adams, like I am, um, and he talked about the floating city. And I, I saw that, and it literally the first thing that popped in my mind was a company called Thorcon, that uh, their, their entire design is, is a floating power module. So you could literally you know, build, build this, uh, this power plant that floats, mm-hmm. right, with your floating city. And I mean, you know, they're, they're you know, not a very big size-wise, but they put out 500 megawatts of power, very large amount of power on a relatively small item. You've got the ocean, which you've got unlimited cooling, the concerns of, of, you know, their design actually is safe from meltdown, um, can use any kind of fuel you want it to. Uh, and then, um, you know, the, the fact is, is that if you were concerned about meltdown, you've got an ocean right there. You could mm-hmm. literally decouple it from your your city and tow it away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And you've got all the water you need. Power so. generation. If you can do it in a uh, either modulated way or in a mobile way is, uh, is very, very powerful. Yeah, that's right? crazy. So we'll, we'll talk more. Maybe we'll find a uh, nuclear power plant and uh, set up some, some Bitcoin mines. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Listen, I really appreciate you coming to do this. Where can, uh, where can people find you online um, or, or more about what you're uh, working on? Um, so I typically am on Twitter, and my handle is at subschneider because I was on Submarine. So it's S-U-B-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R. Or you can also go out to my website, which is www.gen4nuclear.com. And that's Gen, G-E-N-I-V, like the Roman numeral four. And then nuclear, N-U-C-L-E-A-R. I uh, have not seen Roman numerals used in websites very often, but I love it. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, All I, right. And I, I normally capitalize it when I, when I write it out. So everything else is lowercase except the IV. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Man. Well, thank you so much for coming to All do right. this. We will definitely have to do this again. It's super, super fun for me. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was fun too. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.